you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to CollinsLastStand.com. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast. This is episode 87. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by Chris Communism Ray Gun. Chris, how are you today? How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. I got yeah. uh, got a lot of I got a lot of work on my plate, but it's that mm. seems like a good problem to have kind of. Yeah, it's always good to have work and things to do. I like to stay busy as well. Indeed. So that's good. Well, welcome. We're starting a little later today than we usually do. Chris needed a little more time to sleep because of his schedule. And actually, I snuck in a few Z's myself because I've been awake playing games late at night and twirling yeah. away on some other stuff. Chris, I want to congratulate you. I know you're a Bernie Sanders fan mm-hmm. and he is uh, running away with this Democratic nomination here. Yeah, it's so it's kind of funny. It is. I just want to see the thing for me is like, I just feel like he was robbed in 2016 and i just want to see i want to see those two i want to see him and trump fight on the stage i don't even necessarily care who wins but i feel like that would be some uh some good television oh it'd be it'd be awesome i I think it's almost inevitable that he at least has a plurality of or maybe not a plurality but a a majority of delegates going into the convention which can create some sort of 1968-esque convention chaos where they steal it from him but we'll see how it all goes. And uh, I, I actually wanted to use this opportunity to just I, I, I'm surprised I didn't say this earlier, but to just re- I like to just kind of throw out there. We talk about games. We have fun. But if you live in the United States, make sure to register to vote regardless of who you're voting for. Yeah, it might be too late for you to actually vote in the primaries if you're not registered at this point. But at least you can have your voice heard in the general election, regardless of how you feel. We welcome all political stripes here on Sacred Symbols. There is no litmus test. So just go register and vote. And obviously, the British just had a, a vote not too long ago, etc. 
I'm personally waiting for the third parties to sort out who their nominees are so I can pick the weirdest possible candidate <laughs> in which to to vote for in November. I voted for Gary Johnson in 2016, and he obviously completely lost his mind towards the end of that campaign. So, yeah. Does does Ralph Nader still run? Because I remember or is he dead? No, I, I think Nader's alive, but he ran. I think he only officially ran in 2000 and then 2004. He ran again, but he didn't really have much of a resonance while in 2000 he he that was the last notable i would say third party candidate the last really powerful third party candidate of course was my man ross perot who got an astounding 19 percent of the vote in the general election in 1992 which is almost unthinkable and that's the only reason that i think clinton even became president but these things happen of course in 1912 teddy roosevelt ran third party and that's why woodrow wilson became president so yeah i'm uh, i'm looking forward to the election in november as well but just wanted to throw out there no political litmus test, of course. Just go get out there and vote and let your voice be heard. Yeah. In this great republic of ours called the United States of America. All right. Let's see here. What do we have to get through? Well, this is a ostensibly anyway, a PlayStation podcast. We do it each and every week. You can support us on Patreon and get it uh, three days early. I'm sorry to ad free by going to patreon.com slash Collins last stand. This is also a way for you to get access to our Patreon exclusive show. Sacred Symbols Plus the ability to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts and ideas and more. Now, as of the day we're recording this, we have actually surpassed 8,000 patrons on Collins Last Stand's Patreon, so we very much appreciate you. Now, this number fluctuates and will no doubt go down as the month turns over, as happens on Patreon when people uh, have their credit cards decline and all of this, and then hopefully we'll climb back up. But we can always use your support and your love over on Patreon to continue doing what we're doing, and uh, we appreciate you. So thank you so much for that. Remember, you can go to CollinsLastStand.com as well for merchandise and links to the other shows. Now... Chris, I got a weird email from our reps over at Studio 71 who also do our merch as mm. of March 1st. So we're recording this on the 24th of February. On March 1st, uh, our merch store is just no longer going to exist. They're not doing it anymore. So if you want merch imminently, I suggest you go get it now. But I actually have a call with them tomorrow, the day this goes live on Patreon, to uh, segue, hopefully, our merch to one of their partners. So we should have no gaps in service or a small gap in service. But nonetheless, if you really want your shirts and all of that now, you might as well act while you can. The reason they even offered that us to that to us apparently was to put us in touch with other people was apparently our stuff sells really well. So we thank you for that. That's Two, so cool. As far as Sacred Symbols Plus is concerned, last week we had uh, or I had Sophia Narwitz on the transgender writer. She's the writer of SideQuest and is also an independent writer. She broke or broke a story last week, which is a no brainer that basically the cabal of big video game websites are keeping conservative and libertarian voices off their staff. So you can go check that out if you'd like uh, this week. Chris and I already recorded it. It's uh, delving back into the mailbag. We answer a whole litany of different questions, comments, concerns, thoughts and ideas that you guys submitted. We had a lot of fun with that. Now, next week, Chris, I don't know what I want to do. I was thinking about doing an economics based solo episode about console pricing and game pricing. I said that last week, but yeah. Xbox Series X just released or Microsoft just released the Xbox Series X specs and all of this. Now, I assume Phil Spencer will do a small media tour based on this and more information will come out. So I'm thinking maybe next week we should dedicate an episode to that. So we'll see how it all plays out. See if there's anything to talk about there. Yeah. And of course, Twin Breaker, I'm going to keep talking about a Twin Breaker as Sacred Symbols Adventure comes to PlayStation 4 and PlayStation Vita March 24th. It's cross by between the platforms. $9.99 gets you both copies. There is no ability to pre-order. We looked into this. You cannot. We cannot get a pre-order up on PSN. I appreciate so many people eager to pre-order our Brick Breaker, but can't happen. But we did get a question about the physical copies 
which we're doing via our friends and publisher East Asia Soft. Roby Karobi Zapanta. You think that's his real name? <laughs> Maybe. It doesn't seem like a fake one for some reason. Yeah, it's, I mean, or it could be Robe. I mean, there is no... But if you're saying it like Japanese, it would be Robe or Roby, I think. But anyway, it's a great name regardless of if it's real or not. He says, hey, first breaker Colin and second breaker Chris. Well, I'm glad that you didn't go through LRG. That's limited run games. I'm disappointed that you chose to not sell the physical copies of Twin Breakers to your biggest fans and supporters. That's us, your Patreon supporters. With the limited amount of copies being available, why is it that you chose to not give us first dibs? With 8,000 subscribers, there's already much competition between us ordering a copy. When I first heard that you were making a game, I got excited and wish that you will do a physical run. After you announced that you were indeed going to do a physical run, I intended to buy a copy for both PS4 and Vita and plan to beg you guys if you guys can sign it for me. And I will get the digital copy so I can keep my Holy Grail sealed. I hope you guys can reconsider how you will distribute your copies. You guys are like Uncharted 2. Your podcast is so great. You make listening to other gaming podcasts unbearable. (laughs) Thanks for making Tuesdays and Fridays great. And then he says, P.S. It'll be great if you guys do a dynamic theme of Twin Breaker so you can infinitely invade our PS4s. Chris, the good news about this, we don't have a dynamic theme, but we are doing a theme. It should be up either when the game releases or the week before. It's total. It's going to be totally free. We're not charging for it. So I've seen it. It's awesome. I've seen it on a PS4. It looks great. So we will have that and we'll have more information on that. As far as the physical copies, we're going through East Asia soft. Now, you have to understand that this isn't a game being made by me. It's being made by a developer and who I happen to really love, Barry Johnson, Lily Mo Games. We went through East Asia soft because we really love them and they're really reliable. And they did the physical versions of Habroxia, which is uh, Lily Mo's last game. This is just a limited run, and I, I have no real ability to do it just for Patreon supporters. And I don't know if that's really fair, because while I love our Patreon supporters and you guys are the reason we we're able to do the show, we have a financial transaction in place already. You get the show early. You get the ability to listen to Sacred Symbols Plus, etc. I want this to be available to everybody so that there's no additional financial barrier between you and getting a physical copy of the game. It's just even for all. So yeah. I have no problem with the way this is going. I know some people are upset about this. I do think East Asia Soft is considering doing more of a PS4 run, but I don't know. And I don't know if that's going to happen, but I don't know that Vita will happen because I, I uh, above the 1000 copies, because I just don't know if the cards are even available to yeah. do that with. So so thank you for your patience. And we will now we're going to let you know when the pre-orders go live and we'll post that on Patreon. But it's going to be a free for all. And you guys are just going to have to fight over who's going to get the copies. We should put it on. Uh, we should put it on UMD. We should put it on UMD. That's a great <laughs> idea. The game would run on PSP. I mean, I don't think that it would have any problem running on even the original PS One. So that's an option. Well, it's probably not an option. I don't think they make UMDs anymore. Yeah, definitely not. <laughs> if it was, I would do it. If that was an option, it would be. It's kind of interesting, Chris, isn't it? Because when this limited run, like limited run games, and East Asia Soft, and all these guys started doing these limited versions of games, PSP was basically dead in the West. It was just too late. That would have been really cool to have these limited run PSP games as oh, well. Yeah, but, for sure. But there was not a vibrant market for that by the time these things came out. And I'm not sure there's a vibrant market for Vita games, but I know that our game is going to sell well on Vita. And I have a final build of the game, by the way. I have to play it tomorrow just to kind of proofread everything and make sure everything's good. And then we're submitting it. So by the time this podcast goes live on free feeds, the game will have gone gold and will be submitted for certification. That's insane. Very exciting. March 24th. So cool. All right. Let's see here. Let's see here. Oh, okay. Brian Boljack wrote in. 
said, hey, cock me in the taint, Colin, and clapping them cheeks, Chris. That's pretty vulgar. <laughs> Jeez Louise. With Twin Breaker coming soon, what are the odds of getting one or both of you guys to sign it? For those lucky enough to get a physical copy, that is, I don't know what the logistics are on something like this, so I'm not even sure you will even see them before they get shipped. Either way, I can't wait to break some motherfucking bricks. Thanks for all of the great content. Brian, this is probably not going to happen. We're not going to we're not going to see the games before they're shipped. They're going to be shipped by East Asia Soft. A lot of people have been requesting this too, Chris. Yeah, but we can't help you here. Unfortunately, I'm sorry, but I think that we're going to do a meet and greet like a Collins last stand meet and greet this spring or summer in Richmond. I'd actually like to fly Chris out for that. Yeah, that'd be cool. So we'll see if that happens. And then if that happens, you guys can bring your copies. We'll be happy to sign whatever you bring at that time. But stay tuned for that but yeah no imminent results you guys can of course forge my signature if you want when i was that kind of funny i used to not like to really go to shows so uh, towards the end especially i just didn't go to any shows and so i had greg just forge my signature on a bunch of people's stuff <laughs> really yeah so there are a bunch of and they, people knew that it was happening but my signature is really simple it's just a scene and m and like with a like, little flourish and so there are probably quite a few fake colin signatures out there and when our stuff shows up on like antiques roadshow in 2100 there's gonna be some sort of expert that recounts this story this obscure story and then is skeptical about the veracity of the signature which is going to be fun that's awesome that's such a good uh that's such interesting lore it is isn't it all right let's see let's get through some of these other questions here twin breaker questions michael minadakis wrote in said greetings gents first of all extremely excited for twin breaker hoping to get my hands on a physical copy and we'll definitely be getting the platinum Having said that, with all the complaining Colin has done over the years about the always diminishing value of Platinums, how do you justify being able to get the Platinum twice for the PS4 and the Vita for the same game in Twin Breaker? Are the lists going to differ? It seems weird to me when Colin posted getting two Platinums for Herboroxia, and it seems weird to me now. Don't want to be negative, just genuinely curious for the reasoning behind the move. Also, Chris, play Horizon Zero Dawn, you coward. Love the podcast. Keep doing you boys. Chris, why are you a coward? I have. Listen, man, I've got a lot on my plate, man. I got I got a, such a huge, ridiculous backlog. I, and, and, you know, like there's going to be a second one soon, I assume. I'll wait till like the, the hype is building up for that. Maybe then it won't be so much of a it's like a Better Call Saul situation, you know? How Better Call Saul sure. will come out with a season and it'll be a great season. And then they'll take like a year and a half to two years to make the second one. Or the next one. And then it's like, I don't even remember what was happening. Yeah, that's fair. That's why I try to wait for things to stack up on TV, especially. Yeah. With uh, The Mandalorian, I'm doing that. I know a lot of people want me to watch that. I'm interested in it, I guess. But I'm just going to wait until it's over. And then I'll just watch it all at once. Yeah. So leave me alone about The Mandalorian, won't you? Just leave me alone <laughs> about it. But back to Michael's core question. This is actually an interesting question and I guess a fair critique, but the days of there being one list across platforms is kind of over. I think you can still do that, but you have to recall that some people will only play it on PS4. Some people will only play it on Vita. I assume a minority of people that play Twin Breaker will play it on both. You have to earn it twice. You don't just get it once and then it pops for both platforms. You have to earn it twice. So I'm not really feeling that bad about it, especially because it isn't one of these 15, 30 minute, one hour Platinums. You're going to need to spend at least five to seven hours with each version of the game to get the trophies and the, the lists are the same. We'll yeah. reveal that list soon. Once it's submitted for certification, I think the list is going to pop up randomly at some point. So I don't even know if we're going to have control necessarily on revealing it to you, but we'll certainly bring your attention to it when the time comes. Paul Moss wrote in and said, hey, Colin and Chris, 
no witty bollocks from me, I'm afraid. Witty bollocks. <laughs> witty bollocks. That's, I so where you're lo- from. that's so beautifully British. I wanted to ask why you feel the need to read out corrections on the show or all corrections on the show. I understand you like to keep yourselves honest, but some of these corrections can be quite pathetic. If either one of you were to give out wrong release dates or read an article that turned out to be utter nonsense, like the silly motherfucker that wrote an article calling Colin a racist over the infamous day without a woman tweet that those were the days. But most of the corrections are for silly or minor things. I just picture all these crazy folks rushing to Patreon to write a post about how you mispronounced the word or maybe said the wrong publisher for a game. It's crazy to me. You and Chris speak off the cuff for hundreds of hours. It's impossible to never slip up. I wouldn't give people pulling you up on minor things. Uh, I, I'm sorry. I said I wouldn't give people pulling you up on minor things. The attention on airtime. Thank you. And all the best from Manchester, England. And then he says, P.S. Do you still leave the spider corpses out to warn other potential spider intruders? Uh, yeah, I do. When I kill a spider, I just leave it there in warning, like a head on a pike you, to other spiders that might come into my I don't. Locale. I don't think they register that. I don't know. It makes me feel better. I don't think they register it either. They probably eat the body. When yeah, they probably. See it. Yeah, they're like, oh, food. So I hear you here. I appreciate your inquiry, of course, about this particular topic, Paul. But I think it's important, like you said, to keep ourselves honest. I like to be 100 percent clear and accurate on our show. I know Chris does as well. I'm actually pretty impressed if I do say so myself with how little we get wrong, considering how much we do talk into a microphone with very little preparation in terms of like we have a run of show and the stories are written, but we don't Chris and I don't plan the show together. We just I send him the document. He does whatever he's going to do. And then we just meet on Zencaster and record the show. (laughs) That's how it goes. So there's no like pre-production going into this at all. Other than me writing the document. So I think we have a pretty good record. Yeah. And I'd like to keep that record completely accurate. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Some people get really pedantic and annoying. I totally agree with you. I ignore those people typically. Mm -hmm. But if I get a publisher wrong or something, that's worth noting. I mean, I I, I want everything to be accurate because, Chris, I do look at sacred symbols as it's kind of like a saga in which each chapter is an important part to the next chapter and so on. And so I want everything to be as accurate as possible. But Paul, thank you. And my, by the way, Paul, a little meta because you just wasted our time complaining about people's complaints about the yeah, show. So which, which we had to correct, quote unquote. And then we had to correct you. That's really meta. It's going to create a small black hole as space collapses in on itself now. Great. Matt O'Neill wrote in and said, hey, CNC, my question goes back to episode 85 when discussing the four Ubisoft titles that are coming out in the next fiscal year. Although Far Cry 6 seems like a no-brainer when trying to guess the unnamed title, my thoughts are that the title will be Skull and Bones. We haven't heard much about this game in a long time. Could we potentially see this game come out this year? Or has this project been abandoned? Thanks for the great show. Yada, yada, yada. I guess this is true, Chris. Do you remember this game? This Ubisoft game is Skull and Bones? Yeah, I remember seeing it at either E3 or PAX or some show. And I remember (laughs) being viscerally confused because it looked to me like... Assassin's Creed Black Flag. I remember I was like, they're coming out with Assassin's Creed Black Flag again. Yeah, it does look like that. It's a, it's a, it's a pirate um, game. Yeah, it's a, exactly. It's a pirate game. And I actually think that's kind of neat. I remember when I first played Assassin's Creed 3 a long time ago, I actually really liked the the boat mechanics. That was the one that I think introduced it, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah you're right. So, yeah, it's, it looks pretty cool. It takes place in the uh, Indian Ocean and... I think it looks pretty neat. I don't know exactly what's going on with it. It was revealed at E3 2017 during Yubi's press conference, and it has been delayed. We don't really know what's going on. I assume it's also being made in Singapore, which is interesting, but I assumed that 
it will it maybe be one of those games I kind of forgot about it. Yeah. So yeah, that's a reasonable that's a reasonable inclusion in the possibilities of what these these five Ubisoft games are going to be. Would be a pretty cool launch game. Maybe we'll learn about it this E3 when they re-reveal it. Yeah, I I don't know if it'll be this year. I feel like maybe it'll be a next year game. Just just based on how little we've seen of it in for like so long. But it is fascinating that there are so few pirate games. (laughs) Like it seems like a it seems like a genre that would be kind of oversaturated, if not for the fact that it's just arbitrarily not. Like it's it's just kind of interesting. Especially with the success of like so many like, I don't know, like uh, Pirates of the Caribbean and shit. I feel like we would have been all over this for a while. Yeah, I don't know what they're, if they're planning to do a more Bethesda style reveal where they're really tight to the release date for this. Oh, maybe, re- yeah. Re-revealing it or what well, we do know that Ubisoft is planning to release, I guess, four or five games before their fiscal year ends, which will be in about a year. I think 13 months. It's insane. So we'll see how that all plays out. But you're absolutely right. We haven't really talked about that game. We'll keep that game in mind as we move forward and consider what Ubisoft is doing. But Matt, thank you for writing in. Now, Kyle Listerman writes in and I'm immediately confused about it because he says. And maybe I'm just too old to understand this. He says, hello, Calabunga, Chris and Cryptic Colin. What is Calabunga? I don't know what Calabunga is. I'm pretty sure you meant Calabunga, but he just didn't say it right. I'm on Urban Dictionary, unfortunately, and it says. Calabunga, a word one often uses to scream out loud while crazy and or excited at the same time. And then the use of the word is Calabunga, she screamed as she ran across the soccer field after a great victory. There's there's no there's no way that's a real term that anyone uses. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about this. Please don't write in about it, please. Yeah, please don't. Uh, It says last episode, you boys talked about need for speed. Everything was good and fine until you, Colin, said that the most recent ones since they have been non-criterion were well rated. Well, let me tell you, most of the reactions have actually been pretty bad in the community. Need for Speed Most Wanted was the last good one. He got a decent reaction, at least. This news is fantastic for I have mostly stayed away from Criterion. I'm sorry, I've mostly stayed away and Criterion will get me to play them again. We need our arcade racer, Phil. I, I, I guess I kind of spoke out of turn. I guess I was just assuming that the games did well, Chris, because Need for Speed Heat sold really well. Yeah. So clearly someone is enjoying these games. Do you play need for speed at all no not really like i i think i played i think i played most wanted back in the day and that was the last one that i played i I don't think i was ever really that into racing or car games i think the most the most i ever got into them was like the burnout games and i kind of enjoyed midnight club back in the day i think that's a rockstar game i think yeah midnight club was rockstar at least rockstar published yeah yeah and uh those are really the only games that i played that were like that can't say that I kept up to speed with Need for Speed. I'm looking here. Oh, no. Midnight Club is developed internally by Rockstar as well. So Rockstar created and published. Yeah, I've not kept up with it either, but I do want to look here and I'm looking now. So he says that they were badly received or poorly received. Well, let's see. Need for Speed Rivals, which came out in 2013. So that was a launch game for PS4. And it was also on PS3 has an 80 on Metacritic. So there's that. That was a ghost game. The 2015 Need for Speed game. Let's see. That has a, a 60, 66 on PS4. So lower. Not good. Need for Speed Payback, which came out in 2017, has a 61 on PS4. And the Need for Speed Heat 
has a 73 on Metacritic. So right you are. <laughs> right you are. All right, let's see. Jason Vanover wrote in and said, what's cooking ground round Colin and Ponderosa, Chris? I typically submit novel length questions. However, with Colin's recent admission that he typically skips over most of the lengthier submissions. This is not a recent admission, by the way. I've been saying this forever, including in the actual text of when I'm soliciting your questions. It's likely that my diligent efforts in presenting insightful inquiries have not only gone unanswered, but altogether ignored. With that, I'm going to throw away any questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, or ideas that are game-related and instead present an issue so pressing. I'm surprised it's never been broached on sacred symbols before. When eating a sandwich or burger with the addition of cheese, do you put the cheese on top of the protein or underneath? This might seem inconsequential in the grand scheme of things, yet I personally believe cheese under my deli turkey or burger patty creates a better less sloppy bite. The additional toppings then have a chance to truly shine on their own atop the burger. Am I alone with this conundrum? Interested to hear your thoughts. Chris, this is a deep question. We're both burger fans and sandwich fans. Yeah. What do you do with your cheese on your burgers and your sham- and your sandwiches? I don't do anything with my cheese because I order burgers from places that have an established sequence of events as to how they put those burgers together. Uh, I'm not going to I'm not going to be like, hey, can I I'm not going to go to five guys and be like, hey, can I get a bacon cheeseburger? But can you can you do me like a solid here? Can you put the cheese under the meat? Like, <laughs> I, I don't know. That's not my style. Like, I'm not I'm not one to uh, pose an inconvenience to a working class <laughs> citizen like that. I think I, I understand the logic of having the cheese under the meat because obviously, like, you're going to taste it because that's where your fucking tongue is. I get it. That's true. Yeah. Uh, but I also have had no urge to try that because burgers taste delicious without that weird caveat in there. I mean, why not? This, <laughs> why not just turn the cheeseburger upside down? Yeah. If that's then, what you want to do. Well then, well, then you have a bunch of lettuce and tomato and shit at the bottom. That's true. I noticed that as five guys, I get grilled onions and they do put them under the burger, which is smart. Yeah, they do. They do put the cheese on top. And then I don't know what they do with the other toppings because I don't I don't get them. But I assume that they have some sort of, like you said, some sort of system that works for them. Now, there's a few diners. There are a few diners on Long Island where I grew up that I would always get extra cheese. I do get extra cheese on my burgers where they would put it both on top and underneath. Yeah. On the bun itself. And that was ideal to me. Yeah, that's that's that. that's the ideal situation. God, I love American cheese on burgers and even cheddar cheese. I like on yeah. burgers as well. Good stuff. This is a, it is an interesting question, but I think it's actually more pressing, Jason, if I might be honest, with the sandwich itself, like a turkey sandwich you brought up, which I also love. I love pepper turkey sandwiches. The cheese gets a little fucked up being on the top of the sandwich, mostly because then I want to put mayonnaise. I put the mayonnaise on the bread, but then I also like to put mayonnaise like a layer on top of the meat. And then you can't do that on top of the cheese because then it gets all weird. So that's a little bit stranger for me. Maybe tuck the cheese in between the meat. Like put yeah. a little bit of meat on the bread and then the cheese and then some more meat. I'm getting really hungry. Is, we should stop this. Um, me too. I got, I'm going out to dinner right after this. Going to a, a great Chinese restaurant here in Richmond called Fat Dragon. Highly, highly recommended. Fucking great food. Absolutely love that place. Lots of beer on tap too. Okay. A couple more. Pedro Alves wrote in and said, hey, CNC. I know I speak for many people outside of the US, but what is up with tipping? I've heard from American friends that it is supposed to reward good service. But isn't good service supposed to be given in any job? 
In my one time in America, I stuck to McDonald's to avoid all the hassle of not knowing how much to tip. (laughs) Is it mostly a subjective amount or do some places have fixed amounts like 10%? Why is it up to the customer and not the employer to pay the employee? Why is it optional? I have so many questions. Well, 10% is a pretty low tip, by the way. I always tip 20%. So in college, I mean, this is so fucking obvious when you look at the math, but in college, I dated a waitress and she pointed out to me at a restaurant we went to, used to go to like this cheap pub that we used to go to just take the here's the trick you take the sum like the, the the bill sum you take the decimal place you move it over once to the left so if it's twenty dollars you move it over once to the left so you have two dollars then you multiply it by two and that's twenty percent and that's how ever since then ever since i was like 19 or 20 that's how i've uh made my tips now i like to be a good tipper if yeah. i get good service i leave a really good tip but if i get bad service i do leave a worse tip. And I've been in a few restaurants and I had some situations where I've left no tip because I'm like, fuck this. But it is a valid question. I don't I don't know why where this comes from or why restaurants don't just pay their employees a living wage <laughs> so that I don't have to. Yeah, uh, it's your job to subsidize the employees for whatever reason. It's very baffling. I, I like to be a good tipper, too, even though I like fundamentally disagree with it. I'm always begrudgingly tipping well. I'm like, God damn it. It's so stupid. They should just pay these people. God damn it. I know it's it's annoying because we're already paying. And now he asked Krista, some people or he's asking, is this baked in some places? It is sometimes here's a little piece of information for you, Pedro. If you go to a restaurant with like six or eight or ten people, sometimes they just bake in the gratuity. Yeah. Into the bill. Then you don't pay the tip. It's just like 16 percent or whatever on top of your bill. Never really understood that either because. Well, I guess because people get sticker shock and then they don't want to leave a nice tip. So that's probably it. I probably just answered my own question. But yeah. I will say two different things about this, though. In Europe, I've had really bad service, some of the worst service I've ever had. And that's a place where you don't tip. And then in Japan, I've had some of the best service ever. And if you leave a tip, it's considered an insult. So huh. a little bit of a best of both worlds there in some strange way. So here in America, I like good service. I don't like service that's in your face. I don't like service that's asking me too much or it, just I here's what I like, Chris. I go to a restaurant, they seat you, they give you a moment, they come back, they ask if you want any cocktails or any drinks. Then you leave, they come back, they give you the drinks, do you want any appetizers? They leave, they come back, they, or you order the entree. Then they bring the entree, they ask if you want more drinks. Then they come back and they ask you if everything's good. Then they come back and they ask you if you want dessert and another drink. That's it. Yeah. Those are the, I guess, nine encounters or so that I want with my waiter, my wait staff. No, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Some people come, some people check on you too much. You ever been in that situation where you just have yeah, people? Yeah, I don't, I don't like it. No, I don't like it either. Have you ever been a waiter before? No, no, I have never been. I, I've only worked at Sears really. And like a bunch of odd jobs in between that and this. Yeah, I've worked in food service, but at a deli. So I've never been like waiting on people. I used to get really nervous though at the register. Like I didn't like being at the register. It seemed like a lot of pressure. Yeah, because you, you literally just have to interact with people. Yeah, it's just, I mean, you can imagine that that's not my style, especially when I was like 16, 17 years old, a long time ago. (laughs) But uh, Pedro, I hope that that gives you some insight into tipping in America. Don't be intimidated. Just kind of. Now, here's the thing about tipping, though, that I don't like how it's gotten into everything. Like, it's just it just never ends the tipping. Now, I'm tipping Uber drivers, but then you were used to tip taxi drivers. But then the question is, like, why am I tipping a taxi driver? There is a fee for you to come pick me up and then you're tipping the people at the hotel you know like how they come and they like try to take your bags out of your car and so i'm like get up 
Yeah, <laughs> you beat him, beat him back with a stick. Because I don't want to be tipping everyone. And then, you know, you go to the concierge to like leave your bags if you're checking out of a hotel, but you have a little time before your flight. Then you have to tip them and your tip. It's just it is a lot. You're tipping. I go to casinos. You tip the fucking dealer. It's just it is. a It is a lot. It's getting ridiculous. It's, it's a little ridiculous. So we do have to draw the line somewhere. I just don't know that I'm, I'm not going to be the one that draws it. I have to follow the social mores of American culture, but someone else should draw the line. And uh, maybe Bernie Sanders will draw the line for us. I doubt it, actually. That's not going to happen. Benito wrote in and said, hey, Colin, I was playing Castlevania three the other day, and I decided to look up a character guide to see what everyone could do and who they were. Lo and behold, my surprise when I ran across a Colin Moriarty guide from 2002 that describes everyone. You were very adamant that Sypha was a male in this walkthrough. When did you finally realize that he was actually a she? Also, who's your favorite partner for Belmont in that game? Keep up the good work and thanks for the podcast of high quality. Uh, I actually really loved Sypha. Now, I, I know that I got it wrong in the guide. I wrote that that walkthrough, by the way, in 12th grade. And I'm glad <laughs> that it's still circulating all these many years later. But uh, Sypha is, in fact, a woman. She's in, I think, Castle, the Castlevania anime. And uh, I don't know where I got this idea that she was a man. I think it was like just some argument on game facts or something that I just believed. I, guess. I don't know. It's hard for me to go back to that age and tell you. Yeah, it's, it seems like a while ago. I was 17 when I wrote that. So, yeah, 17 years old. I'm glad that these things are still bouncing around, though. It's yeah, pretty it's funny. Cool. I'm, 30, I'm 35 now, so time has certainly passed. If Without those guides, those walkthroughs on Game Facts, I would have never had a job in this industry of ours. So I am very grateful for them indeed. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Now, Chris, it's time to get into what we're playing and I throw it over to you. We both have new answers finally. Yeah. So uh, I kick it to you. What have you been playing? I've actually been playing uh, the Uncharted collection. I've been playing through the first Uncharted because it's a game that I haven't played in a long time. And the last time I played it, I really couldn't stand it. So it's nice to just go back to it and realize that it's oh, it's actually pretty good. It's not uh, it's not as annoying as I remember it being. I think back in the day, did they tweak the shooting, by the way? In, yeah, I think they did. Yeah, okay. Bluepoint, I think, tweaked it, yeah. That makes a ton of sense. Because <laughs> I remember feeling like, oh, this feels kind of modern. This feels good. But I remember distinctly feeling like when I played that game back in the day that it felt kind of horrible to shoot and uh, really frustrated me a lot of the time. But it's, it's nice to see that that issue's pretty much not there at all anymore, which is exactly what... Uh, you know, a remake or not a remake, but like a remaster or maybe like a an up res and port of an older game to a newer 
generation of hardware should do. It should kind of fix the things that were obviously wrong, uh, provided that they don't hold a deep meaning to the fan base in any way. And I doubt anybody's really losing sleep over, oh, they ruined the integrity of Uncharted by getting rid of the bad shooting. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's good. I, I like it a lot more now that I think I have a little bit more experience with that type of game. Because I think maybe back in the day I was also like, what is this Tomb Raider shit? Because <laughs> that was back when Tomb Raider was relevant to me. Yeah. Whereas yeah. now it's like, oh, okay, it's, it's a good game. I like it. It is a good game. I, I like Drake's Fortune 2. 2007, it came to PS3, so it's been a long time. But this Blue Point collection, which I think came out in 2016. Is that right? Maybe no, no, 2015, maybe it was. Yeah, it definitely, they definitely did a really nice job with it. I actually platinum the game on both PS3 and PS4, so I saw the game all the way through on Crushing Difficulty twice, and it's a tough game. I think it's the hardest Uncharted game for sure. Oh, yeah. I'm on normal, and I'm getting, I'm getting shot up like a, like a, like something that gets shot up a lot. Yeah, like a shot up person. And <laughs> I do like some of the set pieces in that game. The crash plane is really cool, and... Sully's really charming. I don't like the way the game begins on the boat. It's like very jarring. And yeah, sudden. it's it's definitely the worst part of it so far. But I, I like that. It reminds me like when I'm playing it, it reminds me of a time when like games felt video gamey still like it doesn't necessarily feel like a, like a third party double A game necessarily. But like you could tell like the way the the levels are designed with like the chest high walls and like the little arenas and like the little like points of interest that are kind of obviously sticking out so your attention is drawn to them it just it, it reminds me of like i feel like i'm playing a really good video game like when i play yeah yeah the first uncharted whereas like i feel like newer uncharted's and even like newer games in general feel more like these kind of really deep experiences or like virtual worlds that you just sort of step into but like uncharted like drake's fortune just feels like a solid fucking video game yeah it's fun great characters great little adventure and it's funny the one thing that uncharted i think it was the later games though that d did which annoyed me was you would go through like a temple and you would clearly see the set piece but it, there were like no enemies and you were going deeper into the temple then you realize it just telegraphed that on the way out you were going to be fighting enemies because there's all of these pieces of cover everywhere and stuff like that so there are some little pieces of design that are peculiar but i don't really know how you would get around them but it's it's the beginning of a, a wonderful trilogy on ps3 one of ps3's most important games so highly recommended if people haven't played it just go check out the uncharted collection on ps4 which may have been on playstation plus at some point i'm pretty sure it was so you yeah. guys probably have access to it for i think free. it was i think it was uh, super recently actually in the last like three months i'm pretty sure oh nice so there you go go check it out if you listen to my pleas for you guys to download these games then you will have it for free in your download list and you can go check it out. Although I think most of the people that listen to the show have played them in the past. And Chris has too. Of course, he's just going through them again. I'd like to go back and play it again at some point, but I did do that like f when the collection came out. So I guess it hasn't been that long for me. Uh, all right. So Chris, I uh, finally beat Dragon Quest Eleven and got the platinum trophy in it. It took me 96 hours of gameplay. Disgusting. It's just ridiculous. And by the way, that is a strict clock. I was crazy about keeping the clock accurate in that game so if i were not if i had to go do something or even like go poop or something i would save the game and shut it off and then come back and turn it back on because i just like accurate rpg clocks the game is just way too long but i gotta say it's it's got uh, it's got charming characters and some satisfying the end ending this third ending i guess satisfied me quite a bit and 
I'm just glad it's over. I actually stayed up till six in the morning the other day because I was just like, I got to I got to stop playing this game. I need to be finished with this game. And and so I was I finished it finally. And there are some really annoying trophies in the game. Otherwise, it wouldn't have taken me that long. I assume without like two of the trophies in particular, there's this one trophy, a silver trophy to get all of the equipment that changes a character's appearance, which was really fucking annoying to do. So that took that was probably 10 hours of my life. That I'll never get back. But other than that, yeah, it was good. I mean, I don't recommend it to anyone that isn't into traditional Japanese role playing games. And if you are, then it's a game you're going to probably want to check out. But you could beat it and be satisfied in 40 or 50 hours if you don't care about the real ending and the platinum trophy. But Dragon Quest 11 finally done. Uh, I've also been fucking around with Twin Breaker. As you guys know, we mentioned that earlier. And then finally, yesterday, I downloaded Vanquish on PS4. I bought it. Now, I had a little bit of a conundrum, Chris. Because you can buy Vanquish by itself for $24.99, or you can buy Vanquish with Bayonetta for $39.99, or vice versa, if you want to buy Bayonetta by itself, whatever. Yeah. And I decided to just buy Vanquish, because I assume these games will not keep their price for very long, and if I want to play Bayonetta later, which I'm probably not going to, I'll just buy it at that time. But I was really into playing, just really excited to play Vanquish, and I gotta say, man, game fucking rules. It re- That game... It, it's not always the case, as you know, that you go back to a game that you really enjoyed. I played Vanquish when it came out in October of 2010, and I haven't played it since, where you like remember a game and then all this time later, you're like, oh, it doesn't hold up very well. This game is just as good, just as fun, just as kinetic and exciting and campy and weird and funny as it was back then. I so highly recommend everyone play Vanquish. Yeah, it's just so good. It is so good. I love it. I just absolutely love it. <laughs> I'm really excited to jump into it. I miss that game like a lot. It's funny what I don't remember about it, though. And I don't know if you remember this. It's like really Metal Gear Solid ish. The cigarettes. Not only the cigarettes, but the the. it's just like it's Metal Gear. There's just a lot of Metal Gear Solid camp. Oh, in yeah. The game. No, I, I love uh, I loved Vanquish when it first came out. I think I remember the thing that sold me on it, too. I think I think there might have been a demo because I think I think demos were around at that time. Because I don't know how I would have heard about it or seen it otherwise, because that game didn't really get a lot of marketing or, or really anything. So when I saw the demo and you were just power sliding around on your knees, I was like, I, I, I have to get this. Like, this is amazing. Like, this alone is a selling point. It's wonderful, dude. It's like a really wonderful game. I, I was so pleased when I started playing it. I'm like, yes, yes. <laughs> I remember all about what this game was, how why this game was so fun. It's also not very long. There are these really difficult challenge modes to play yeah. through. The thing I remember most about that game is that the uh, I don't remember which level it was or maybe it might have been throughout the whole game. But like the skybox being like an inside out planet of some kind. And you could like kind of see the curvature of the Earth, but in the opposite direction. And it was just like so striking. It's pretty neat. It's really cool. Pretty neat. Yeah. Mikami uh, also directed it. So. I think it was one of his last games, if not his last at Platinum before he went to Tango or founded Tango Gameworks. So pretty cool in terms of its history, too, but just highly recommended. I I so highly recommend this game to people. I just can't recommend it enough. I'll be really shocked if you like shooters like you out there. If you're a shooter fan, third person shooter fan, especially, and you don't like this game, that would be shocking to me. Yeah, just absolutely shocking. I don't know what you wouldn't like about it. It's just absurdist Japanese Gears of War with Metal Gear Solid camp. And it's and it's so good. That's exactly a perfect way of putting it. 
And I got to say, now, this isn't a unique thought. I've said this on the show before, and I actually stole it from someone else at some point along the way because I don't I didn't come up with this when the game came out. But it, it's it's a G.I. Joe game. That's what's so exciting about it, too. It's just so G.I. Joe esque. Everything about it that <laughs> like the enemies and the characters and the weapons and the environments. It's just really, really neat from that perspective, too. You almost wish that someone would take the time to make a G.I. Joe game like that. Yeah, which would be so cool. Because they did just reveal a bunch of G.I. Joe, new G.I. Joe's, not a bunch, four new G.I. Joe's at Toy Fair. And I pre-ordered all of them like a huge, gigantic nerd. I pre-ordered <laughs> all of those. So very excited about that. Now, Rubinos wrote into us and said, hey, CM Duo, I feel like it's time for an intervention for Colin. This Dragon Quest nonsense has gone too far. One of the things I've always appreciated hearing from both of you is to enjoy video games on a personal level. Let go of unrealistic expectations and always do what feels good. Gotta always do what feels good. That's true. Playing a game out of petty spite doesn't sound like it feels good, Colin. Don't let some inflicted sense of urgency trap you, my friend. Keep them Tuesdays coming. Well, I appreciate your thoughts here, Rubinos. But I and you talk, I don't know if you can identify with this, Chris, but I put so much time into the game that at some point you reach an inflection point where you just can't stop. Otherwise, you've wasted all of the original time that you put into the game. Mm-hmm. So once I crossed the Rubicon, it was over for me. I had to see it through. Do you ever feel that way when you play a game? I don't think I do really. Like, I think I just sort of value the time that I had with it. And I'm like, the second a game is more tedious than it is fun is the second that I can drop it and feel okay about it because I know that I've extracted the perfect amount of fun from it for me. Um, so like a game like Dragon Quest, I'll play it. If I, if I, if I play a game like Dragon Quest and I enjoy it and I get to a point in like 50, 60 hours where I'm just not, if I'm just annoyed and I'm not having fun and I'm just like, ah, oh, man, I just I, I'm trying to finish it out of spite. I can stop it. And I, I don't think I'd have too much of a problem. I'm not going to lose any sleep uh, because if I truly wanted to finish it, I would have done so. I just feel like I don't know. I, I, I feel that sometimes I can get over that sometimes. But I think it's because you're a trophy guy. I think it's the trophies, man. I think you have a because yeah. you have a, a bar that lets you know you failed to get through this. It's probably and it, and right. It, and it bugs yeah. you. It does. It does bug me. I mean, that's definitely a component of it. Yeah, because I know sure. that I can say that, like, because I don't have that kind of connection with completionism, like, I just don't I don't have a problem. Like a second, a second game is not fun anymore. It's just like I'm done. I'm on to the next thing. I'm totally fine with it. Now, here's what's amazing, though, Chris, about this to me is that Dragon Quest 11 sold something like five or six million copies. And the platinum trophy is something like six percent. That's incredible. That's pretty high. That's a lot of people. That actually played this game for 90, 100, 110, 120 hours. It's just an extraordinary amount of people. Now, I'm not surprised a lot of people beat the game because Dragon Quest is all about that and has a huge fan base. But it's really more surprising that that much time and energy put into this. I don't know that I've ever taken that long to get a platinum in my life. Yeah. And I have rarer trophies than that, I think. So, like, I, w- I would love to get the Vanquish trophy, which is rare on PS3 and will be rare on PS4 because the challenges, especially the last challenge, is really fucking hard. I don't know if I have the skill. To do it. I just don't know. We're going to find out, I guess. We'll see. And finally, before we get into the news, Adam Barnes wrote in and said, hey, guys, hope you're both well. This one's for Colin. I figured out why you're failing your JRPG a month goal. You've mentioned a few times recently that you've been going out and doing things with friends, the concert, the breweries. Don't you know that some things are more important than friendship and happiness? Get your head in the game. (laughs) This is fair, Adam. I, I appreciate what you're saying. Some people are already counting me out for this 12 JRPGs in 12 months thing, but I'm not going to be playing a game as long as Dragon Quest again. So I'm feeling confident once I'm done with Vanquish, I'm going to move on to Final Fantasy eight. 
So I'm feeling confident, Chris, that I can hit my goal and still have some modicum of a social life. But let's not overstate the reality. I'm not going out very often. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not leaving the house very often, to be perfectly honest with you. So don't fret out there about me. Don't worry about me. I'm going to be just fine. Colin, Colin will be will be safe. I'll be safe. I don't want to get coronavirus, first of all. And that's what our first topic is about here on the news, Chris. So let's get into it. Nice segue there. Thank you so much. You set me up. So I had to hit the ball. All right. Yeah. Number one, multiple publishing entities are bailing out of PAX East, which will be underway by the time this podcast hits free feeds. The most notable absentee of them all, however, is none other than Sony itself, which originally intended on having a substantial presence at the show, but which will now be no longer attending in any way whatsoever. And a brief addendum published to its PlayStation blog post about the games it would be bringing, including The Last of Us Part Two, Iron Man VR and others. The following was written, quote, today, Sony Interactive Entertainment made the decision to cancel its participation at PAX East in Boston this year due to increasing concerns related to COVID-19, which is coronavirus. We felt that this was the safest option as the situation is changing daily. We are disappointed to cancel our participation in this event, but the health and safety of our global workforce is our highest concern, end quote. Days later, Sony announced it would also bail out of the annual Game Developers Conference in San Francisco, releasing a similar statement. GDC is set to run from March 16th through the 20th, and GDC in turn released a statement that read in part, quote, We believe that based on the strict U.S. quarantine around coronavirus and a large number of enhanced on-site measures, we are able to execute a safe and successful event for our community, end quote. Meanwhile, PAX told the Washington Post, in part, that they will employ, quote, enhanced cleaning and sanitation across the show, end quote. Sony isn't the only one bailing out of these events, however. Facebook and Oculus are no longer attending GDC, while Square Enix is reducing its planned presence at PAX East, according to its website, eliminating travel from Japan for anyone who was scheduled to go. And right before we began recording, Kojima Productions revealed it, too, would not be attending GDC due to coronavirus fears. So that's a lot of people, a lot of Japanese studios, especially Josh Torres wrote in and said, hey, canceled Colin and Chris with Sony pulling out of all of these events, PAX East, GDC, stating the coronavirus is the main reason. What the hell is going on? Are we all going to die? Thanks and Tuesdays. That's what he said. Thanks and Tuesdays. Appreciate that. Chris, what do you make of all of this? There's a lot of conspiracy theory thinking about Sony. Just not being ready to show things and kind of trying to avoid stuff. I think that that's kind of tinfoil haddish yeah but i'm curious what you make about them pulling out i mean it was a big deal that they pulled out of pax east and and it's actually a huge deal that they're pulling out of gdc because that's a way for their people to communicate with indie developers and smaller developers they do panels and instructional seminars and they have meetings and they sign games it's actually them not being a pax east is actually way less consequential than them not being a gdc i don't think a lot of people are looking at that at it like that but it's very true so what do you make about their kind of pulling out? And then obviously we don't have to, Facebook and Oculus are not really relevant to this, but Square Enix not going, Kojima not going. What do you make of all of this? It's very strange because like, I feel like this whole thing, I, don't, I might be wrong, but I feel like swine flu, like fucked up a lot of people, like way more people than this did, or this is on the same time frame. So like, I don't know. Do we just not know something? Do, do they know something that we don't? Is this like really like a, like a, like a crazy epidemic? Because it, it really doesn't feel like it. But like when a lot of studios make this kind of a huge pullout, it, it begins to feel like maybe there's something crazy happening that the general public isn't privy to. 
It's hard to say. I, I put up a poll as a joke yesterday. I don't know if you saw it, asking how many people at PAX East will come down with coronavirus when the show's over. And someone wrote to me, most people got the, that it was a joke, but someone wrote to me from South Korea saying, a listener of our show saying, you know, it's not a joke. Like, it's getting pretty serious over here in South Korea. Now, South Korea, which has nothing to do with Sony, but South Korea is, I guess, the closest thing that we have to the epidemic if you want to call that call that spreading from China, there's a lot of confirmed cases there and a lot of drama going on in Seoul and in other cities over it. And I don't know, Chris, if it's just because of the proximity of Japan to China, lots of travel probably going in between those different places, South Korea, Japan, Beijing, whatever the case might be. And so maybe they're more susceptible to it there. I don't know if that has something to do with it. And then I'm also a little confused about if they're doing it to protect their Japanese workforce in particular, or if they're really doing it more from a litigious standpoint where they're afraid that let's say like they send their workforce, they send Naughty Dog, for instance, to Boston, to PAX East, some other person that just went to PAX East got sick. So they're exposed in some theoretical way to this. And Sony let them go to the show. And maybe they're opening themselves up to lawsuits, even if no one gets sick. I think that there's probably a lot of different components to this. The one thing that I can say for sure is that Sony's taking it seriously enough where they're eating all of the sunken costs and they're not getting their money back for their show floor presence and any of those things. The badges, I mean, the badges cost money. At GDC, badges cost four, five, six hundred dollars each, and they're purchased en masse for people that work at these studios. So Sony is potentially eating millions of dollars for no gain other than to protect themselves in their workforce. So I don't want to be too conspiratorial, but I'm wondering if they're just trying to protect themselves on the back end. And the interesting thing about it to me is that they're, they've sown like a lot of fear about the show simply by pulling out. But I guess they're doing what they have to do. Yeah, I don't know, man. This is beginning to be like a little weird because I feel like we've had some cases in Los Angeles. We've had some cases in, in the U.S. in general. And I don't think I've heard much about it at all. Yeah, I haven't either. I mean, not that I'm like paying cl the closest attention to the coronavirus news that's out there. I'm sure there's plenty of it. But we also have to keep in mind that the virus originated in China and China is a communist totalitarian dictatorship. So they're not clearly being honest. I mean, I, everyone has seen the videos at this point out of Wuhan province or whatever. I think that's how you pronounce it, where there's like military going around. People are getting locked into their apartments. I, w I heard that they there was a purchase of like incinerators being sent to that place because they need to, I guess, burn bodies and stuff like that. So however bad we think it is in China, it's no doubt much worse there than we think. Yeah. And that in turn has a problem because I would say, like, why don't we just seal China off from travel to the United States, which seems reasonable but there's so much commerce going on between the two countries and there's over a billion people there and most of them are perfectly fine and they need to come to the States for business or pleasure. And we're actually not allowed into China without permission from the government as Americans, but it's easy to get. So I don't know, man. I don't know if it's that they know more than is letting on or if their proximity as corporations is just closest to China and they're protecting themselves. Or like I said, I really think a lot of it has to do with Let's just not risk anything. Yeah. Now, let's not risk our workforce getting sick. If someone at Naughty Dog gets sick, they bring it to the studio. Suddenly, a bunch of people at our studio are sick or someone gets sued. I think it probably has something to do with that. But it's 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 surprising. And I wonder 
the Kojima announcement just happened when I woke up. So I'm wondering. And now that's for GDC, which is still a few weeks away. I bet you they're not the last to go. And I don't want to be too stereotypical about it, but I'm going to be. Gamers at these conferences are not known to be the cleanest people. And I'm not talking about like personal hygiene. I'm saying that like because that's obviously a joke, like the uh, the meme of the two hundred dollar anime statue and then the two dollar bar of deodorant. <laughs> yeah, like I, I really love that meme. But more that like people at these conferences touch controllers and they cough on their hands. They go to the bathroom, then they put on a VR headset, then, you know, et cetera, and so on. It's because a lot of people have brought up the point. Well, there are all these conferences in the U.S. all over the place, but I'm like, they're not quite like these. Yeah, because if you go to like you're going to like a farming conference or something and you're like looking at farm equipment and you're listening to seminars, everyone's not handing around a controller or like a a touchpad or putting on VR headsets. It's just it's different. So the the stereotypical these places are gross anyway thing combined with the tactile nature of these shows, I think makes it a more ripe breeding ground for coronavirus or anything else to spread. PAX plague is a thing. I mean, people talk about that. That's an, that goes all the way back to the origins of PAX. I've gone to these shows and gotten crazy sick. And in the years since I've been really disciplined or have tried to be really disciplined about keeping my hands washed and not touching my face and not touching my mouth and my eyes. Yeah. But that's why, by the way, people will remember at IGN and I think it was more kind of funny. I didn't like using P- I wouldn't use PSVR headsets at public shows because I was like, I don't care that you're wiping it down with alcohol. Like, this is gross to be sharing these things with people like they're like two inch, you know, two centimeters from your eyeballs. I don't need to be sharing that. So I think I don't know. I think it's a complicated thing, but um, I do want to say that the conspiracy theory about Sony not going because they're afraid or they don't have anything to show. I think that's dumb. Yeah, obviously that's accurate because they're not showing PS5 anyway. So what are they what are they afraid about? The Last of Us Part Two is going to be a game of the year contender. I'm sure they're really eager to show it off. And by the way, Naughty Dog has created the demo, so they've wasted all of this time for a demo that they're not even going to be able to show. So check the conspiracy theories at the door, my friend. Yeah, it's a bit check much. Check them at the door. All right, let's move on to number two here. This is an interesting one. Website Kotaku reports that publisher Electronic Arts canceled yet another Star Wars game, meaning that at least three in-production Star Wars games were canned by EA since 2017, including, most notably, the visceral-developed Project Ragtag, helmed by Uncharted creator and writer Amy Hennig. According to Kotaku, the game was codenamed Viking, and it was a Battlefront spinoff that was designed to be launched alongside PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X in the fall of 2020. Interestingly, Visceral Games, the EA-owned studio that has been since shuttered and that was best known for its Dead, Dead Space series, was the original developer behind the game, which was then shuffled along to EA Vancouver alongside Ragtag's assets for a Star Wars game codenamed Orca that was also canceled. Viking was supposed to be a semi-open world game that was at some point handed over to EA-owned Criterion, which we just learned last week, uh, received the Need for Speed franchise back from EA-owned Ghost Games. According to this reporting, Criterion's Star Wars game was then canceled in 2019, and EA Vancouver has been put on Anthem and Apex Legends support duty. Josh the Nomad wrote in and said, Hi, Mighty Seamen. It's official. EA has canceled another Star Wars game. This time it was supposed to be a spinoff of their Battlefront series and to be released in 2020 alongside the new consoles. My question for you guys is how is it financially viable to have canceled so many Star Wars games? 
I know that some games just never get into the right track or onto the right track, and it might be better financially to cancel a game that's not coming together. But EA's kill streak is growing ever higher. Could they be reluctant to release anything that doesn't meet a high standard or has a good revenue model to avoid another Battlefront 2 situation? Chris, what do you make of this? This is an interesting story, mostly because this game was canceled almost a year ago and it never actually leaked, which is surprising. Yeah. But I was sad to read this just because I feel like Electronic Arts handling of Star Wars has been so bungled. They got the, as people will recall, it was back in 2013 that they signed their exclusive deal with Disney. And they've really only released a handful of games, including, I would say, one game in Jedi Fallen Order that is really considered somewhat of a critical success. They're all commercial successes, but I don't know that Battlefront was decidedly not a commercial or critical success and Battlefront 2 only became one later. So how do you feel about this whole situation, this whole thing with Star Wars, the canceled games? Talk to me. Look, look, man, I think EA, (laughs) EA just has a really strong history of just fucking up the things that they own like i I don't know what it is about that studio or or that publisher in particular but they just have such a long track record of this and the fact that they bungled the most valuable ip in video games probably the most valuable multimedia ip i should say so many times and so frequently and the fact that we the fact that we didn't even know about it even though it was canceled so long ago, it was actually kind of wild because that just means that this happens so often that people probably saw that and were like, ah, no, that can't be, that can't be real. They couldn't have canceled another one. You know what I mean? It just feels, it just feels bizarre that they are just so incapable of just doing just basic shit. Yeah. It's, it's disappointing because it really shows a breakdown of fundamental production pipelines at these studios and through EA as an entity, as a production entity, through their different teams. And like you said, this is such a valuable IP that you would think you would do everything necessary, including buying new teams, hiring a bunch of new people if necessary, and scaling up and acquiring the finest technologies in order to make this a reality. And for this to go fall through once, okay, and you can even say Project Orca was really just a spinoff of Ragtag, so that getting canceled, okay. But now that like it's like another game is canceled, and they've canceled now as many games as they've released in this run so far. And it's just so disappointing. I, I don't know the, the ins and outs of this deal. I don't know that anyone does. I don't know that it's public. It might be in, in um, EA's financials, but I'm really desperate for this IP to get out of there. So that others can make something else or at least allow it and democratize it and open it up so that Respawn can make a sequel, which I think we're all excited about for Jedi Fallen Order. They can continue Battlefront if they want, but like let someone else in to start making these games and treat this IP with respect. But the, the ironic thing is that Disney hasn't really treated the IP with very much respect. So why would we expect that their partners who they have even less control over than themselves yeah, would treat the IP with any respect to it just sucks. It sucks because Star Wars is so cool. And I don't know why it's so hard for these different entities to just do it right. It's really frustrating to me, like in a major way. It feels too like it really isn't even that difficult to make a quality Star Wars game just because we've had generations prior to this deal where we had kind of a lot of them in kind of rapid succession. Like I remember... Star Wars Jedi Power Battles was a lot of fun on the PS1. I remember we had Star Wars uh, Jedi Starfighter on the PS2 and Xbox. We Force Unleashed, Force Unleashed 2, 
uh, Battlefront, Battlefront 2. Like, we had so many quality Star Wars titles. I wasn't even a Star Wars fan, and I liked those games, you know? So, like, the fact that they just can't get shit together with, like, even better technology than what was available when they started, like, when they were making amazing shit, it's just weird. Like, I just don't even think I could justify... Like, if I was working there, and I was answering to people, even if Disney isn't treating the franchise with the utmost respect, you know, I still... I would, I don't know, man, I, I would be really embarrassed if I was in charge of all this. Yeah, heads have to roll for this. I mean, I don't like to encourage people losing their jobs, but if you're in charge of this vertical at EA, you have to be let go. You, your whole team has to be let go. It's it's not a problem with the developers necessarily. It's really a problem with the the pyramid at the top of the pyramid as it all flushes down to the various entities. Yeah, there's just something wrong. And it's it's too bad because, yeah, there have been bad Star Wars games over time. The Battle of Terrace was bad. Yoda stories was shitty. But like you said, all the games you rattled off, the original Battlefront games, KOTOR yeah. was awesome. Uh, obviously, there was a whole run of PC games like X-Wing versus TIE Fighter and Dark Forces and stuff that people loved. The thing about Star Wars to me is that it requires probably the least amount of thought in terms of plot because you can just write fan servicey stuff and appeal to the the fan service instincts of an audience and come up with something great and that's what they did with Jedi Fallen Order Jedi Fallen Order has just a nice mixture of the familiar and the unfamiliar some new protagonists some new antagonists but lots of familiar things as well lots of familiar features so they're not having to write something from scratch it's easy i would think it would be easy to wedge in so pardon the pun to wedge in somewhere a new Star Wars game that makes a lot of sense that draws from the different lore that already exists and it makes something enticing. Now, I don't mm. think we have all the information yeah. about why these games were canceled. I'm specifically interested in why Ragtag was canceled because Visceral is so talented and Amy Hennig, you think you would never let that kind of talent go and leave your studio. But nonetheless, and she's at Skybound now, so she's long gone. But I just look at this and I get frustrated because I'm always going to be a Star Wars fan at heart and they're just not giving me very much to work with of a, of a high quality in any regard it, with the exception of rogue one which i thought was phenomenal i and i liked episode seven and i actually liked solo but otherwise it just seems like a lot of disappointment and i know people like the mandalorian and all that and that's great i'm sure it's fine but it just i just don't understand what's going on here and i think a really good example of how to do these kinds of partnerships properly and constructively is what marvel is doing which is owned by Disney, by the way, with kind of farming out their IP to different developers so that they are able to farm the very best talent and the mm -hmm. very best ideas from multiple verticals. So Spider-Man with Marvel and putting Ultimate Alliance exclusively on Nintendo, etc., partnering with your with the Lego team, whatever the case might be, it's like this is good stuff because then you you're able to get the very best you don't just have this whole ownership over it. It's such an electronic arts thing to do, and I'm so frustrated by it. It's the same reason why we don't have c competition in football. Yeah. In American football. So I, I don't know. I just hope that Disney is wise enough to, to take this back at the earliest contractual opportunity that they can. And I, I, I just doubt that they're going to do it, though. I, just, yeah. I don't know that it's going to happen. I just don't think they care. If they really cared, they would have their own studios doing this, by the way. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I, I I guarantee you that Star Wars makes so much money regardless that I feel like Disney is just like, ah, it's printing money. There's no reason to go in and do anything. 
you know, because they make most of their money surely off of merchandise. Like, surely that's like the, yeah, definitely. the cash cow. I would assume so. I would and, assume so. Yeah, and I, I don't imagine that EA's mishandling of the Star Wars brand is going to do anything to actually hurt merchandise sales. And so I feel like maybe the best course of action for them, in their opinion, is probably just like, eh, it's working fine. Don't fix what isn't broken, even if it is like broken from a fan perspective. It's not necessarily broken from a bottom line perspective. Yeah, it's you're probably right, and it's disappointing yeah. that that's the case, but you think they would just care a little bit more, but they don't. Yeah. So we'll watch this and see what's newly announced and what comes out from these different studios. It seems like EA is shuffling a lot of things around apart from this. We talked about Need for Speed and the Frostbite engine and kind of the Ghost Games working on Frostbite now, and it seems like they're shuffling around a lot of things. This might all be in reaction to these various moves, so... We will keep a close eye on it, obviously, and have more as it becomes available. But it would have been pretty cool to have a PS5 Star Wars launch game. I will say that. That would have been huge. Yeah. Number three. Rumor has it that Call of Duty Modern Warfare's so-called Warzone mode, which is essentially Call of Duty's Battle Royale functionality, is coming very soon. And if word from website Video Game Chronicle is any indication, the biggest surprise isn't when it's coming out, but how it will be released. The website reports on the previous discovery of game files embedded in Modern Warfare pointing to Warzone, but notes that it will likely be launched sometime in early March, perhaps in just a couple of weeks. They point to March 10th as a prime candidate. Modern Warfare owners will get Warzone instantaneously and for free, but here's the biggest part of this. VGC says that Warzone will also be released completely independently as a standalone download and that it will be completely free to play. Those who download Warzone for free will then be given an offer in-game to pay an upgrade to the entire Modern Warfare package. The website describes Activision's future approach as a so-called third pillar, with the very popular Call of Duty Mobile acting in concert with the annual console and PC release of the core premium game and its paid-for add-on content. 2019's Modern Warfare and its affiliated content was created by Activision-owned Infinity Ward alongside other Activision-owned teams like Raven. This is interesting stuff, Chris. What do you think about this Modern Warfare or the Call of Duty entering the, fr- the free-to-play realm with uh, a Battle Royale? Yeah, this is a no-brainer. I think I literally suggested this years ago, especially when uh, Battlefield was doing their Battle Royale. I think it was called, oh my god, I don't even remember, Firestorm or something like that? Yeah, something like that, yeah. Yeah, and I remember them, I remember thinking, like, how are you gonna, you can't, Battle Royale is just, like, one game mode. You know what I mean? It's, it's such a meatless game type like there's no meat in that on that bone there's no there's nothing to it aside from just live the longest survive maybe die maybe win that's like literally the entirety of that mode you can't expect that people are going to jump into a battle royale mode that's competing with a free-to-play one you're not gonna pay $60 to play what you can already play for free so like I always thought like yeah if you're gonna do a battle royale mode just have it a free-to-play version of that battle royale mode and then allow people to buy the full game which actually has you know, the campaign and a proper competitive multiplayer suite. So this makes a ton of sense to me. I'm not a fan of Battle Royale at all. I don't even understand how they can continue to compete in this space, especially when they already have a Battle Royale mode in the previous Call of Duty. Now that they're now that now they're competing with themselves seems just like a weird strategy to me in general. But as a general practice, this makes a ton of sense. This should have been what they did in the first place. This should be what everybody does if they're considering a thing like this. I don't know, man. You just want as little barrier of entry for your players as possible. And this is how you do it. I think this is interesting because I think Activision is one and Call of Duty is a brand. These are some of the entities that are most easily able to kind of subject their will onto the market. 
And it makes the the decision of House Mark and others to get out of the Battle Royale market. House Mark, of course, kind of shelved Storm Divers very smart because it would have cost them their studio. So I was really pleased to hear that. But this is one of the few games, one of the few IP and one of the few publishers that can exert their will onto the market. And so I think the Battle Royale, I don't, I don't want to say the Battle Royale uh, floor is about to fall, like the bottom is going to fall out. I don't think that's true, but there's just no more room. And so I'm wondering how this will affect the major players in this space and the multiplayer space generally, but obviously PUBG and Fortnite. And then, of course, games like Apex Legends. I don't know how much more room there is to extract value out of going down this road, but I do like it as a module in which they can tease Call of Duty to maybe a younger fan base that doesn't play them because the games cost money. And it's possible that they might like the way it feels and then buy Modern Warfare so or future Call of Duty games. So it, it seems to make a little bit of sense to me, too. I just don't know what's happening here because I've said it before. I'm pretty sure the new Halo is going to have a Battle Royale mode. And I'm also sure that we haven't seen the last of Battle Royale and some other major franchises. Like you can imagine Battlefront, the Star Wars Battlefront games having a Battle Royale, too, at some point in the future. So I just don't know exactly how this is going to work, what the market looks like. It's not a market that I'm intimately familiar with as a player. But this was one of the least surprising things I read as well. I was happy to see it, though, because I think that the Apple cart can be upset a little bit more here and we can extract more value out of out of these games and out of these teams. I mean, I, the, the, the entity I feel bad for, I'm using that word a lot today. The entity I feel bad for the most, though, is PUBG, who is just getting their lunch eaten by these other studios that just came and saw their idea or the popularization of the idea that they kind of spearheaded and, and took it for themselves. And that's the way the market works. But they must feel like shit because they, they can't be winning right now at all. We're going to talk about them in a few minutes. No, but, but they still made like a boatload of money. <laughs> so. They did. But I, I wish that they I mean, I don't wish I don't really give a shit, but I'm sure they wish that they had a little bit more control over. Over the game when it was still like a phenomenon where they could have iterated on it more, made it better, yeah. made it more sophisticated because these other teams with money lapped them and they just took too long. And that's pretty clear, even from an outsider's perspective. But we'll keep an eye on that. March 10th is the rumored date, but we don't know for sure. We'll obviously talk about it when we have more information on the show. Mm -hmm. Number four, Persona 5 Royal is getting slightly edited for its Western release to the delight of some and to the consternation of others. Upon the original Persona 5's Western launch in 2017, a small group of players were offended by the depiction of two gay men in the game, particularly during a pair of in-game days, June 18th and August 29th. As everyone out there knows, Persona takes place on a calendar, like over a calendar. Yeah. In those chapters, one of the game's protagonists, Ryuji, I think I'm saying that right, ha is encountered by two gay men, one known as the beefy trendsetter and the <laughs> other known as the scruffy romantic. In the June 18th chapter, Ryuji encounters them in Shinjuku, where they come onto him strongly with some stereotypically aggressive gay male behavior, seemingly refusing to take no for an answer. The scene in particular is actually played out in the Persona 5 anime, where it's a bit more vivid. The August 29th scene shows Ryuji on the beach, where these two men again come onto him aggressively and stereotypically. In a comment given to website IGN, a representative from publisher slash developer Atlas noted, quote, we actually were able to go through some of the lines that players may not have received as well, look at that feedback, and then update it for the current generation, end quote. Atlas called it, quote, a chance to make it right, end quote. Persona 5 Royal, 
An enhanced and even more content-rich version of 2017's Persona 5 comes exclusively to PS4 in the West on March 31st. Undead Wolf wrote into us on Patreon, Chris. He says, hey, CNC, this topic was briefly mentioned on the latest Sacred Symbols Plus episode with Sophia Narwitz, but I would be, but I would be interested to hear both of you guys discuss this news that Persona 5 Royals Western release will be censored to remove so-called homophobic content from the original. The scenes in question involve two flamboyant gay men hitting on a male party member who clearly isn't interested. It's played for laughs. Even if these characters are stereotypical, in my opinion, the localization team should keep the intention of these scenes as close to the Japanese version as possible. Outside of Reset Era, you won't find many people who were so offended by these scenes to the point that they would want them removed. The original game sold over 3 million copies. Thanks for everything you guys do. Sacred Symbols is the highlight of my week. Keep making Tuesdays and Fridays great again. Uh, Thank you, Undead Wolf, for writing in. Chris, did you watch these scenes? I pointed you towards a Kotaku article that encapsulated them. So what did you make of it? Before I give my thoughts, I'm curious to know what you what you think of this uh, drama. Yeah, I I don't necessarily see the big deal in the scenes. But at the same time, I'm also kind of of the mind that. This is just sort of a re-release and like a a little bit more like a, a revision kind of of Persona 5 anyway. I think I would be a little bit more opposed to this like weird change if they were going back to the Persona 5 that everybody already bought and kind of editing the game that way and sort of patching the previous thing out. Because at that point, I don't know, to me, I just like to have things preserved as they were. I don't necessarily like going back and, you know, rewriting the first installment of a game for the sake of like updating it for modern audiences especially if people fell in love with that content specifically it's part of the reason why i don't like even even like later on in in the consoles life cycles like when demos would come out they would patch demos so you didn't get those like weird early builds of demos that you used to get on demo discs and stuff and that that kind of sucks but if this is just a re-release of persona 5 with like more shit in it and they're changing it to in reaction to some feedback of players in their audience i don't necessarily see the huge deal in it yeah i'm of two minds here yeah on one hand from uh from a corporate and business standpoint i don't know that atlas has anything to really lose because this and changing i should say because people love persona they're gonna buy this game anyway it would really be hard for me to imagine that someone's like they're changing these lines i mean we're talking about literally a few minutes worth of dialogue yeah. at the most in a game that's 100 plus hours long so that's one point where this can only attract people who might have otherwise boycotted the game. And it might be a small like the reset era group might be the only people that really care, but it still attracts people and 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 builds goodwill. But on the other hand, I think I have a problem with this, I guess, from a different perspective, just because are you not allowed to show stereotypical behavior, extract humor out of it? Yeah. And are, in other words, does everything have to be like acceptable socially for it to be in a game? I'm not saying it's like a cool thing necessarily or something that you want to laugh at the show to stereotypically gay, effeminate, aggressive men coming onto this guy who's not interested in them. But but why? I, I like it's hard for me to kind of wrap my mind around like, why is that a problem any more than and I don't want to conflate these two things, of course, but. It's like there are villains in games that encapsulate all of the bad things in the world. Racism, bigotry of different kinds, murder, theft, whatever, rape. And we accept that that's part of storytelling. It doesn't mean 
that you endorse it. So by putting these gay characters in there and having them act like this, it seemed, I mean, and me watching the scenes a couple of times, it seemed tongue in cheek. And I don't know. I mean, it's definitely tongue in cheek. And I just don't know if you can really satisfy everyone. I think it's okay to tell jokes and to be inappropriate and to play on stereotypes sometimes in the course of fiction. Yeah. And so that's kind of my major problem. I'm not a major problem because I really don't care. I'm not going to play it. But that's kind of my (laughs) two headed approach to it is that it makes business sense. But I don't know really what you're what this creates an interesting setup where they've kind of conceded a point that's not that offensive to begin with. And is this thing going to affect them in the future? It seems like Atlas is often subjected to this stuff. They were subjected to this, too, with Catherine, where they had to edit some stuff for that game and to do with transgender stuff or people were complaining about that, too. And my whole argument is that, like, there are going to be things that are are offensive. And I think that that's okay to be in these games. And I, I just I don't believe that you can't punch down with humor. I think comedy punches in all directions, 360 degrees. And so yeah. it's it's a hard argument to make because I'm sensitive that some pe- to, to the fact and empathetic to the fact that some people find this stuff truly offensive and they don't want to be subjected to stereotypes. But there are all sorts of different people in the world and not every gay person is going to be represented by this, just that as in not every gay person is going to be offended by it either. So it, it makes yeah. it hard to know who you're really talking for. And um, yeah, I I agree with that. I, I think it's it's very weird because I, I really get the strong feeling that I don't really think that gay people who I, I don't know if they're the ones really complaining so much as people complaining on their behalf, because I specifically remember one of my favorite examples of this. It's, it's not necessarily related, but like Seinfeld had a Puerto Rican Day Parade episode where Kramer accidentally burns a Puerto Rican flag during the Puerto Rican Day Parade. And that episode was like, that episode aired and was immediately taken off the air. It was like banned from reruns because it was like offensive. But like everybody in my family who is like deeply Puerto Rican loved that episode, you know? So like, I I do, I do wonder like who is actually complaining about this and whether or not it even applies to the people who are complaining about it. And if, if my hunch is correct and it really is people who aren't affected by it at all, I would prefer that things remain the way they are and not concede to the points of people who aren't actually affected by anything. But at the same time, I, I, I just don't mind that it's a re-release. I think that really is the weird kind of caveat to me. Like if they went back and edited Persona 5, that would kind of bother me, even as somebody who doesn't play Persona. But the fact that it is just sort of this like, hey, here's a new thing. It's not exactly the same as the old one. There's a bunch of new shit in here that wasn't in the old one. It's like, ah, I don't know if I care that much. Yeah, I, I'm not going to die on this hill because I don't don't care too much about the game. And I'm not even really I don't think it's really even that much of a consequential edit. But I will be curious to just watch this thread and see. Yeah. If someone pulls it in the future and it spins out for them, because Atlas seems to be the publisher with the biggest propensity to cater to the whims of a small social media mob and a soul, small yeah. social justice mob. So. I just think you got to be careful about the points you concede because then your land and your and, and the line starts to erode and then you might not like where you find yourself. Oh, yeah. Where where you're trying to defend something else. So I just think that creators should create. I think that's the best way to to let the market then speak about if people are offended by these things or not. But like I said, I don't think Atlas really has anything to lose. I think they just have a little bit to gain, but they might have something to lose in the future. And 
we'll be we'll I'll be interested to see. I mean, again, I think I said this on Sacred Symbols Plus, but I haven't said it here is that I'm working on a game concept that we want to make uh, Lily Mo and I not anytime soon, but in the future after we get a few of these other smaller projects out of the way. And the protagonist is a black man. And I'm wondering if I'm going to get heat for trying to write a black man. Right. As a as a white guy. So I'll be <laughs> we're far away from having to worry about that, but I'll be interested to see how people feel about that when the time comes. I'm really excited about the concept, but I'm not going to share it uh, right now. Yeah. All right. Number five. If you're a fan of the old gothic PC games, there's good news. A remake of the original game is coming to PlayStation 5. Word comes by way of publisher THQ Nordic, which revealed in a press release that it is moving forward with a remake of the original gothic based on overwhelming feedback from the audience. To undertake this project, THQ Nordic is creating a new fully owned studio in Barcelona, Spain that will be dedicated to creating the experience. And while no release window has been revealed, the press revealed has revealed that it won't be launched in 2020, which rules out which rules it out rather as a launch game. You may recall that THQ Nordic released a so-called playable teaser for something gothic related just a couple of months ago and that players overwhelmingly overwhelmingly requested a remake of the original as opposed to something new. So the publisher publisher is aiming to satiate that demand. Gothic, geez, I can't read today. Gothic is an action RPG franchise that was released by German studio Piranha Bytes and defunct British publisher Zycat Entertainment in 2001. It was only on PC. Gothic 2 followed in 2002 and Gothic 3 in 2006, both published in different regions by different entities and both only on PC as well. The franchise's console debut occurred in 2010 when Arcania Gothic 4 launched not only on PC, but PS3 and Xbox 360 as well. The game was ported to PS4 in 2015. Gothic 4 was created by Black Forest Games, another German team. This is important because both Black Forest Games and the original developer, Piranha Bytes, were were acquired by THQ Nordic along with the Gothic IP, the former in 2017 and the latter in 2019. Piranha Bytes has since gone on to create the Risen action RPG franchise, of which 2012's Risen 2 and 2014's Risen 3 appeared on PlayStation 3, with the latter also coming to PS4. Its latest release was the action RPG Elix, which came to PS4 in 2017. Black Forest Games, on the other hand, created the Gianna Sisters 2D platformers, the ill-received 3D platformer Bubsy, the Wooly Strike Back, and others, and is currently at work on the Destroy All Humans remake, due out at some point this year. So there's that. Are you? Do you ever play? I never played Gothic, so I, I didn't have any. Yeah, any no, thoughts I've, on this I've really. straight up never even heard of this. Like I, I saw news about this, and I it sounds like something that I should have at least heard about in the past, but like I really I have no memory. Of this ever being a video game. It's just one of those games. It's like Icewind Dale and other, those other games which are coming to PS4 where yeah. I would see the boxes in like EB. But I had no idea what it was because I didn't play PC games. So Gothic was just one of those games. Right. And then by the time it migrated to PlayStation, I just didn't care anymore. There's too many other games to play. So I'll be interested to check that out when yeah. the time comes. And number six, speaking of THQ Nordic, the European mega publisher has made yet another studio acquisition. This one pretty substantial. Saber Interactive has been acquired by THQ Nordic's parent company, Embracer Group, according to website Gamasutra, in a deal worth $150 million. Crazier yet, if certain future milestones are reached, another $375 million could be kicked in, making the overall deal worth more than half a billion dollars. Though we often joke about THQ Nordic and its satellite entities acquiring every developer under the sun, most of those teams are small. Saber Interactive, headquartered in New Jersey, runs five offices in five separate countries with some 600 employees. 
The developer has long had a relationship with mid-tier publishers like THQ Nordic, especially Focus Home Interactive and Mad Dog Games, and has developed and co-developed a litany of games. Its internal projects include the 2017 FPS Time Shift, the 2012 FPS Inversion, the brawler Shaq Fu Legend Reborn, and most recently the co-op shooter World War Z based on the book. Its external projects include extensive work on the Halo franchise along Microsoft and 343, and most recently porting The Witcher 3 and Vampire to Switch on behalf of CD Projekt and Don't Nod, respectively. Matthew wrote in and said, What's up, Cathonic Colin and Catatonic Chris? Recently, the Embracer Group, the company formerly known as THQ Nordic AB, acquired Saber Interactive. The deal includes $150 million up front and a chance to earn $375 million extra over the next three years based on performance. That's a potential of $525 million. For a company only really known for making ports to every other console and a mildly successful World War Z game, how do you think they pulled in a bigger deal than Sony reportedly paid for Insomniac? What do you think THQ Nordic sees in this studio worth that kind of investment? And when will THQ Nordic acquire this podcast? Thanks, and keep it excellent. Can you imagine? We are available, THQ Nordic. Now, Chris, what do you make of this? I have a lot to say about this deal, actually, because a lot of, it's been really underreported. But I'm curious if you have anything to put in here about this acquisition of Saber Interactive. Yeah, I don't know. That price is really friggin' steep. I know they. I know Saber Interactive has worked on like a lot of shit. I know they're. I know they're extensively familiar with Halo. I know they. I know they worked on the multiplayer. Uh, component to Doom 2016 as well. I I wonder if the investment in that studio is purely because of their relationship with other studios and other publishers, or maybe it's just their the fact that their hands are in so many different IP already or have been in contact with so many different IP that maybe THQ Nordic sees value in that connective tissue. I don't really know what other reason you would buy Saber Interactive because they're not especially like, uh, you know, this incredible AAA team. No, they've made a few games. World War Z was moderately well-received and sold well, and Inversion was really the last game of any consequence that they released on their own. This reminds me a lot of why I think it would be wise for Sony to acquire Bluepoint, mm-hmm. although I don't think that they should pay a half a billion dollars for them. A studio like Bluepoint is a studio like Saber Interactive, where it attracts not necessarily creative people in terms of design or the creation of a new IP or anything like that, but rather people that are interested in engineering, porting, software solutions, engines, and having a team in your family that just does that is really valuable. And I think having Bluepoint on board in Sony's family, even though they basically work in a second party capacity right now, I think is really wise because, and I wouldn't be surprised if they did buy them, because then you just have a team on board that just understands your engines, understands your workflow, and you just funnel shit through them without having to contract a studio outside that might demand more money. So you make the money in the back end. And I think THQ's acquisition of TH of uh, Saber Interactive, and I don't know this for sure, but it strikes me as something that is being done with a similar goal in mind. These guys are master porters of yeah. games, and they are also really good at support, like you said, with Halo and with Doom. So if you have a team like Saber Interactive internally, instead of like having and by the way, with 600 employees over five countries, then my my assumption here, Chris, is that they have Team X working on Game Y. Game Y is running on PC instead of having then Team Y port the game themselves and bring it over to the different consoles. They then export the game to Saber Interactive. Saber Interactive then brings it to other platforms and kind of stretches it over the various platforms that it might be available for while Team X moves on to the next thing, saving themselves maybe six months or a year in development time. Now, I'm not sure if that's the case, 
But that seems to be one reason why Saber Interactive might be this valuable. And the other reason is that THQ Nordic has acquired a shit ton of IP and they have a studio now that can port them. Yeah. So they they own scores and scores of dormant IP. And to just be able to say, like, we're just going to kick these over to Saber Interactive now and we're going to see what they can do with them in small teams that work on X, Y and Z while we don't have to bog down our Black Forest games and whatever our racing studios and all these guys porting their old games, we can have someone else do it. So I think it makes a lot of sense to have a team that is not necessarily in charge of creativity, but is in charge of engineering. Yeah. And so I think that that's probably what's happening here. But I don't know for sure. I mean, that's just my conjecture. But I, I was surprised by how little people were talking about this. This actually wasn't even reported on a lot of websites. I didn't see it on IGN or Kotaku. It might have been there, but I might, maybe I missed it. And so I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about it because I think it is substantial. I think that this is probably the most important acquisition THQ Nordic has made so far in mm-hmm. the ability for them to finally realize a profit from the games that they're creating and yeah. to finally have some sort of conduit by which they just pass things through without having to worry about it at their smaller internal teams of which they've acquired so many of them. So that's my assumption. I don't know for sure. Yeah. No, I mean, without a doubt, I think that's probably like a wise investment. I, I just wonder if that price will meet. Like, I wonder if they think that that like, do you think that that's a, an appropriate price? I think the one hundred and fifty million dollars is appropriate. Yeah. All of the the royalty bonuses and stuff like that. I don't know this. This indicates to me that they have ambitious plans mm-hmm. with this team moving forward. And so Again, if what I'm saying comes to comes to pass, Chris, then what I think we're going to end up seeing out of THQ are a shit ton of re-release games. And you can imagine that if they do that, like they own Homefront, for instance, right? So like the original Homefront. So if you wanted to re-release that game, maybe you can make like $10 million by re-releasing that game. So you give it to Saber Interactive, they port it out and then it comes out and whatever. And then so you slowly chip away at that sum over time. And maybe a lot of that sum isn't even realized if it doesn't work out. And then they paid a more reasonable sum of money just up front to acquire the talent of this team. But just like with any acquisition of a team, I would be afraid. And I think this is the case with Insomniac, which was purchased for two hundred and twenty nine million dollars. The talent can go anywhere they want. I don't think any of these people are necessarily locked in unless they have bonuses riding on them staying, which is possible. And a lot of those things will be paid out over time, which is the case when studios are bought, but usually only at the top. So it's always risky to make this kind of acquisition, but it's certainly worth noting that this total money or totals possible money spent is more than twice what Sony paid for an insomniac. And that to me is, is a little nuts, but we will see how it all turns out for them for THQ Nordic. Very interesting, very, very interesting publisher. No doubt about it. Number seven, Sony has filed a new patent in Japan for what appears to be a new motion controller likely to be used in conjunction with the next generation of PlayStation VR. The filing is back from is back from mid 2018, but wasn't published until mid February of this year and shows a device that looks a bit like a top of a fighter jets control stick with a thumb button facing the player, a strap around the side of the unit to hold it to your hand and sensors in the front of what will likely be read, which will likely be read by the next gen PlayStation camera. Some of these sensors are also meant to be read by your fingers and the position of your fingers as they're wrapped around the unit. So basically it's like a camera and then sensors in the front and a button where your thumb would be. The unit itself, as well as the abstract and other information in Japanese, can be seen on the website Patent Scope, and your browser should be able to translate the text. A separate patent has been filed, according to website Respawn First, that outlines biofeedback capabilities of DualShock 5. 
The grips on the controller can apparently track your heart rate and even sweat secretion. It's unclear if this patent outlines the basic DualShock 5, an attachment to DualShock 5, or a secondary DualShock 5 controller. As always, it's important to note that Sony and other corporations patent things all the time that it never intends or ends up releasing commercially, so it's unclear whether this device or either of these devices will ever see the light of day. I don't need... The, I, so the controller for the PSVR is fine, but I don't need a controller reading my heart, mo monitoring my heart, and sweat secretion. That's yeah. fucking stupid. That's I'm sorry, that's just <laughs> dumb. That sounds, <laughs> sounds like something Kojima would suggest. Yeah, definitely. You remember the Wii had that thing that never came out that was supposed to like clip onto your finger? Or yeah, was it the, the heart, Wii U? The heart, I thought it did come out. I don't think it did. Maybe it did. I, I don't I know. Don't Maybe I did. just have like a weird, a weird memory of using it. Maybe it was a dream. But like, yeah, they <laughs> they had like a, a heart rate monitor, right? Or like a pulse monitor for Wii Fit, I think. Yeah. So it was the Vitality sensor. It was announced in 2009. It's strapped to your finger. And I'm not seeing. Yeah, I'm only seeing stories from 2009, but I'm not seeing. Yeah, it's canceled. So there's a video here. It says it was canceled. The heart rate monitor was canceled. Oh, that's so. a shame. So, yeah, 11 years ago, I remember that coming out very or being announced. So weird. Very weird and frankly, stupid idea. Yeah. Number eight. You may have heard of a game called Little Town Hero, a traditional RPG that came to Switch late last year. Though it was earlier confirmed for launch on PS4, now we have a release date, thanks to the official PlayStation blog. It comes to the console this June. This is a fairly substantial announcement because Little Town Hero is a Game Freak game. And Game Freak, of course, is the studio behind the Pokemon games, a franchise co-owned by Nintendo and tethered to its hardware. With rare exception, Game Freak only works on Pokemon games, and when it doesn't, such as with 2005's Drill Dozer or 2012's Harmonite, those games still only come to Nintendo platforms. While this isn't technically Game Freak's first PS4 game, that would be the obscure Sega-published side-scrolling action game Tembo the Badass Elephant, launched in 2015. <laughs> that was a pretty good game, actually. This is one of only a handful of non-Nintendo games that Studio has made since it was founded way back in 1989, and it re represents by far its most substantial migration off of Nintendo ever. NIS America is acting as the publisher in the West. The game comes to Japanese PS4s in April, two months earlier. So just to give people a little taste, Game Freak, obviously, we all know, very talented studio. I was looking at the games that they've made. And so other than a shit ton of Nintendo games, Pokemon games, probably about 30 or 35 Nintendo games, they made two games on Mega Drive, which is Genesis. They made a Turbo Graphics game in 1996. The Genesis games were 92 and 94. They made a PS1 game that only came out in Japan called Click Medic that came out in 1999. And then they made an iOS and Android game in 2013. So it's a huge deal that this game's coming. And I am interested to see how it is because I like Game Freak. They are very talented, traditional role-playing game makers. And we will see yeah. what happens here. But I wanted to kind of split that one out just so people knew it was coming. It would, a game like that would usually go into our wrap-up, but not this time, not for Game Freak. Yeah. Number nine. There's some notable news in the unwanted world of video game movie adaptations. For starters, it appears the Uncharted movie is actually going to begin filming imminently, according to IGN, who talked to the movie star Tom Holland, who is set to play protagonist Nathan Drake. At the time he spoke to IGN, he noted that they would be filming in just four weeks, that Mark Wahlberg will indeed be playing Drake's partner, Sully, and that the stunt department in Germany is already hard at work on all of the movie's many stunts. Holland will be portraying a younger Nathan Drake than we see in the Uncharted trilogy or Uncharted 4, though we obviously won't be playing one quite as young as we see in 2011's Uncharted 3. 
The movie is set to film through the coming summer and is aiming for a March 5th, 2021 release date in theaters. The other piece of movie news, according to The Hollywood Reporter, is that a Borderlands film is in pre-production with Eli Roth directing, Craig Mazin writing the script, and brothers Avi Arad and Ari Arad uh, producing alongside Eric. Is it Eric Feig or Feig? Feig? I think I think, I think Feig. Feig, Eric Feig and Gearbox's own Randy Pitchford, along with the head of Take-Two Interactive, Strauss Zelnick. Eli Roth is best known as the writer and director of the hostile horror franchise, the Cabin Fever movies and others. Craig Mazin is the writer of Scary Movie 3, Scary Movie 4, and others, but is perhaps best known these days for his work as the creator, executive producer, and writer of the hit HBO series Chernobyl, which is fucking awesome. People should go watch it if they haven't. Yeah. Uh, the Arad brothers have a history in the toy business and in partnership and separately co-produced a ton of comic book related TV shows and movies, including Iron Man, Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, X-Men, and many, many others. Neo JD wrote in and said, your thoughts on Eli Roth set to direct the Borderlands movie? Will it have a chance? Or is Borderlands not as good as without uh, is not as good without Anthony Birch writing it? I don't I have no fucking idea what's going on with this. I don't, do we need a Borderlands movie? I, I feel like the only way it could work, Chris, is if it has like a Mad Max vibe. But we already have a Mad Max. We already have a George. Yeah. So I don't know why we need <laughs> why we need this. What do you think about this news about Uncharted? This news about Borderlands? Uh, I, I guess I guess this Uncharted thing is happening. I, I bet it's going to be I bet it's going to be a, a thing. And I, I just, I don't know, man, this, this Borderlands thing is confusing as hell to me, especially because like Avi, Avi Arad, like aren't they, this is the dude who's like on all the special features of the Amazing Spider-Man movies talking about how good the Amazing Spider-Man is. It's, it's like, it really has not aged well, that dude and his takes, but Eli Roth is a strange choice. The guy who wrote Scary Movie 3 also wrote the fucking Chernobyl series. That's a interesting. I know. That's, that is baffling. That's weird, right? That is such a baffling. That is such a baffling canon to this universe that that's real. But I guess, I don't know, man. If if, if people really want this, then I guess, I guess we're going to get it. I don't foresee a Borderlands movie being good at all. I don't even really think the writing in Borderlands has ever been good with Anthony Burch writing it. I, I think a lot of that game is characterized by a lot of the ridiculous voice acting and the the wacky kind of character interactions. I don't I don't think it's necessarily written well. So to see, I don't know. Could you imagine sitting in a theater for like an hour and a half just listening to Borderlands? Like no. I, I don't know, man. That sounds really no. really awful. Like I, I feel like even if I was a fan of Borderlands, I feel like I would I would think that that wouldn't be a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I love Borderlands and I, I have no interest in a movie. I, I Again, I just well, let me get into this other question. This will set us up. Brian Lau wrote in and said, hey, Sonic, Colin and Knuckles, Chris, I would love for Chris to be my Knuckles. That would be awesome. <laughs> I watched Sonic last week and I thought it was a very OK movie. It was in no way terrible, but not great either. Jim Carrey as the evil Ace Ventura was a nice touch. My mom actually saw it with my nephew, one of my nephews, and she actually really liked it. Anyway, at Onward's premiere on Wednesday, Tom Holland said the Uncharted movie will start filming in four weeks. It looks like this video game to silver screen freight train will not stop with the box office success with Detective Pikachu and Sonic. Colin, are you ready to succumb to these mediocre video game movies? No, I'm not ready to succumb to them. I really just want to keep stressing that I don't think we have anything to prove as an industry. And I feel like this is only done. I'm glad the Sonic movie is good or that people like it. I'm, I'm, I'm happy about that. I'm glad it's doing well. That's awesome. But why do we feel like we need to do this? Why other than just making money? What are you really extracting a value from a Borderlands movie that you can't get from playing Borderlands? It just doesn't make any sense. See, we have the advantage in gaming 
that the film industry doesn't have because we interact with our products. So making a movie seems like a massive step backwards for any of these products. Yeah. You're not going to get, first of all, Tom, I was looking at pictures of Tom Holland, perfectly good looking guy, nice guy, I'm sure, good actor, whatever. He, he is in no way Nathan Drake. I'm sorry. Like, I don't even understand how, where, where this came, this casting came from. You know, it, it just, there's yeah. going to be, there's too many comparisons to be drawn. And then Mark Wahlberg is Sully. That's just fucking weird. That's, that's even, that's the, the weirder part to me. I just, I don't know, man. I just don't, I don't get it. I don't understand this desire for more. I think less is more. I think that if we want more Uncharted, we hopefully will get another game. And I think we will. If we want more Borderlands, hopefully we'll get another game. And I'm sure we will. Let's not split our focus on film while film has its own purpose, which is to tell stories in its own way. I feel like our medium is such a, an enhanced way of telling stories that we don't need films. So yeah. I'm going to keep resist. I mean, to, you know, the market will speak, but I'm going to keep resisting this stuff. I just don't think it's necessary. And uh, I'm frustrated by it. I, I agree. I, I think there are ways. I think there's value in this stuff. I think there is value in like, you know, different adaptations of different mediums. I think there's a reason why, you know, we had games like The Witcher that were based on books and now we have a TV show. And I think that's really cool. It gets a lot of people engaged with the property. Uh, the Witcher TV show, like famously, like even though that's a that's a recent thing, it like blew up the sales of The Witcher 3, like an insane degree. But I think that's also because I, I just think video games and television have a lot more in common than video games and film. I, I, I think if you're going to pursue this live action mixed mix of mediums or this live action transition from one medium to another, if you're going to go from video games, I feel like the best way to do that is to go through TV. A movie is just not going to cut it. Every Uncharted game by itself, if you isolate Uncharted 1, 2, 3, 4, each of them by themselves has more content than a single Uncharted movie could ever have. And it has more storytelling than a single Uncharted movie could ever have. And it has more character act- character interactions than a single Uncharted movie could ever have. Because games are meant to last for a long time. Like, I don't, I don't know how long Uncharted 1 is, but I've already been playing it for like five hours. And I, I, don't, I don't think I'm that close to the end. So it's a pretty long game. I think it's probably like in the 12 hour range. Yeah. So so like I just I feel like when you make a video game like Uncharted specifically, or even if you were to do it with The Witcher, you're inherently missing out on so much of what makes those worlds. And so what so much of what makes that universe interesting because you have to condense it. You have to speed it up. It reminds me of what they did with um, the series of Unfortunate Events movie back when Jim Carrey was playing uh, Count Ola, I think it was like 2004, 2005 or something like that, where they crammed three books into one movie and you can really feel it. And I don't really want that. I don't want to feel like I'm watching Uncharted abridged, you know, like that. there's no need for that. I think if you're going to do this kind of thing, go with TV. I think The, the Witcher kind of proved that. I think a show like Uncharted would do pretty well. I think we went over this before when when Uncharted recently started trending because the movie was in the news again. But I feel there's already an Uncharted movie. It's called Indiana Jones. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the reason why Uncharted is so cool is because it's an Indiana Jones video game. That's not to take anything away from the originality of Uncharted. There's plenty of originality there. But, you know, it, it, it serves a purpose in our medium. And I think it could serve a purpose on television also because there is no... There is no television show quite like that or or with that exact tone. 
but like a movie i just feel like everybody's gonna everybody's gonna go into the uncharted movie and they're gonna be like what is this we've already seen this yeah i don't know how you can win here i i think this is a bad idea and i agree with you tv i think is a more vibrant place i i think we're in such a golden era of television have been for 10 years now or so yeah where this is such a vibrant place to tell stories and and have those kinds of parallels i, I totally agree with you there we'll see how this all pans out but i don't know man i, I i'm a little disappointed that this is being given so much credence because I think that our medium is just so much more powerful, insightful, resonant, and impactful than yeah. anything a movie can do. And you're right about Indiana Jones. I mean, uh, Amy Hennig will be the first person to tell you Indiana Jones was a massive influence on Uncharted. So, and I mean, you could see that obviously between Tomb Raider and and Indiana Jones. I think she had all the influence she needed, but. I'm with you. We'll see how it all yeah. pans out. I hope the movie's great. I mean, yeah. I'd love to be wrong about that. This is one of those things I'd love to be wrong about. Just like dream, with dreams, I always say it's not going to sell well. I mean, that's really obvious now, but I w- would love to be wrong. So I'd love to be wrong here, too. This isn't something this isn't a value or it's a va- I guess it is a value judgment, but it's not a it's not like a, a curse. I'm trying to put on these things. I would yeah, love yeah. for everything to do well. I just don't know that it's it's realistic. I also want to point out that Detective Pikachu and Sonic, those movies are very financially successful. That's really great. But those are, without a doubt, those movies are mediocre. Like, without a doubt. Like, they are mediocre movies. They're fine. They're inoffensive. They're not great. They're not terrible. They're, they just exist. And I think that's just such a lame way to represent our, our, our medium. Whereas, you know, I know Witcher isn't exclusively a video game. But even Castlevania. That, that show is amazing. That show is so good. And I feel like yeah, that's a excellent. great representation and a great example of, like, listen, if you're going to do this shit, if anybody at... You know, higher up positions at these studios are listening. If you're going to do anything like this, TV is where you want to go. I assure you of this. That is a good example. Castlevania is a good example of this working because that it is really. I mean, I'm, you're not going to find a bigger Castlevania fan than me, and I like it. So, and I I hate anything that tries to ruin Castlevania. Anything. <laughs> Number ten. This is a wrap up. There's a lot of games. Website Gamatsu reports that stealth RPG Disjunction is coming to PS4 at some point this summer. That side-scrolling action game Gestalt, Steam and Cinder is coming to PS4 at some point this year. That JRPG RFL Enhanced Edition is coming to PS4 on March 26th. That tactical RPG Element Space is coming to PS4 on March 24th. That action game Radical Rabbit Stew is coming to PS4 on July 16th. That multiplayer-centric Drillman Rumble is coming to PS4 at some point this year. That rhythm action game Giraffe and Anika is coming to PS4 at some point this year. And that 3D platformer Pumpkin Jack is coming to PS4 near the end of this year. Website Push Square reports that turn-based roguelike Rogue Lords, which looks really fucking good, is coming to PS4 at an undetermined point in the future. That driving simulator Road to Guangdong is coming to PS4 on June 19th. That's a Chinese game, which is pretty interesting. That tactical RPG Other Side is coming to PS4 this summer. That previously revealed strategy game Desperados 3 now has a release window of summer. That manic racing game Dangerous Driving 2 is coming to PS4 at some point later this year. And that adventure game Deliver Us the Moon is coming to PS4 on April 24th. Push Square also reports that MMORPG Black Desert is the newest game to receive cross-play support between Xbox One and PS4, functionality that will unlock for both versions beginning March 4th. And finally, Battle Royale game PUBG is also getting cross-play between PS4 and Xbox One as of update 6.2, finally unifying the two ecosystems. Well, 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 that, that is sure all is we a have. Lot. I got to say, man, it is, it's a lot. R- that RPG, the what is it, this uh, other side? Yeah, that's cool. I like I, I like that name. It's really clever. Yeah, it's a great name. There's a, yeah, it's a good. There's a few good ones. Radical Rabbit Stew sounds pretty cool too. Yeah, 
right there. But yeah, that's a good name. You're right. Other side is a good name. We'll see if it's any good. Actually, some tactical RPGs kind of making a comeback, which is nice yeah. to see on the heels of Felseal, which is, of course, game of the year 2019. Now, Chris. It's time to read the new game releases that come to PlayStation Network, PS4, PS Vita and PSVR this week. As tradition dictates, you will go first. Oh, boy. Bloodroots comes to PS4. In Bloodroots, the world is your weapon. Improvise and adapt to an ever-changing ballet of ultraviolence. In a bloody revenge quest across the Wild West, betrayed and left for dead, Mr. Wolf is hellbent on finding his killer and enacting revenge, alone and vastly outnumbered. That is one sentence. Yeah. Is it? No, it's no, two no, sentences. No, no, there's two sentences. Yeah, okay. Yeah, this game looks pretty cool. Gotta be honest, it looks pretty cool. Bucket Knight comes to PS4. Bucket Knight is a classic run-and-gun platformer game. Even knights still have to pay taxes, loans, and alimony. <laughs> help an unnamed, help unnamed but brave knight in his sacred mission to find the Holy Grail and make some money. Explore dungeons, slay enemies, avoid traps, stay alive, and get rich. Sounds like an awesome idea. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. Coffee Crisis uh, comes to PS4. Coffee Crisis is a neo-rogue brawler. What? That puts yeah, you in the shoes of the only baristas on Earth. With enough heavy metal in their veins to fend off an alien assault. Play solo or join up with a friend to fight across eight unique locations, ranging from your coffee house HQ to the far reaches of outer space. I love the word crisis in games and in. Oh, yeah. Like anime and stuff. I think it's I think it's a great word. Dino crisis. Yes, exactly. Classic. Diadra Empty comes to PS4. The epic of a girl and a small dragon spun into the fantasy sky. A new look of 2D shooting, high field shooting is here. Run around the sky and confront powerful enemies with a variety of weapons and a high degree of freedom. Flowing clouds, sparkling light, shining wings illuminating the sky and translucent graphics that color the story. Small wings and a girl's wish run through the sky. Ganbar, Ganbear, Super Strikers comes to PS4 and PS Vita. I, I don't, Ganbear, Ganbar, I don't know. Ganbare, maybe? Ganbare, yeah. Strategize and kick your way to the goal to become the best soccer player. Ganbar! (laughs) Super Strikers is an innovative mix between tactical RPG and soccer. Interesting that this is happening a lot lately. This whole, like, like, uh, RPG and sports combination. I feel like we've we've been talking about that a lot. Win matches to level up and earn new new equipment that will allow you to earn special abilities. Boost your player stats or protect yourself against altered status effects. I don't know what the hell this is, but yeah, this game, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, just in the uh, rundown that we do at the end of the news. The game looks really cool. I don't know if it's going to be. I want to play it. It, it, lo- it sounds and looks really neat, so I'd like to support it, but yeah, I'll let you guys know. Grizzland comes to PS4. Welcome to the Grizzled Planet, a seamless open world platformer presented in retro style and filled with old school challenges. Explore without pointers to uncover secret areas. Equip yourself with unique items and skills, even the ability to shrink and enlarge or explode and recombine. Only through self-discovery will you overcome enemy dinos in epic combat and find the truth of Grizzland. Oh. <laughs> hey Fever uh, comes to PS4. Help Thomas, the allergic mailman, gather all his lost letters in this <laughs> challenging and unique 2D platformer. In Hay Fever, the player takes control of Thomas, a young postman with a strong work ethic. There is just one tiny little issue. Thomas suffers from terrible, and we mean terrible, allergies. (laughs) Sounds kind of funny, actually. Yeah, I like that. Whatever it is. Hero Must Die Again comes to PS4. You are the hero. Your last memory is felling the demon Guile. 
thus saving your word. However, you died in the process and now you cannot remember her, the one for which you fought the demon. The gods have given you five more days to put your affairs in order, but time will quickly take its toll and you will grow weaker as the days pass. Hmm. Mm. Okay. House Flipper comes to PS4. House Flipper is a unique chance to become a one-man renovation crew. Buy, repair, and remodel devastated houses. Give them a second... <laughs> give them a second life and sell them at a profit. Experiment with interior designs and decorating styles you like. Express yourself. You can buy an empty apartment and furnish it or focus on repair and installations. Again, it's one of those those uh, games rather that I'd be like, it's probably be fun, but I don't yeah. think I'd ever actually play it. Infliction, Infliction Extended Cut comes to PS4. Wander through an interactive nightmare set within a once happy home. Uncover the heartbreaking mystery hidden within messages, artwork, and other vestiges of domestic life, all while struggling to survive encounters with a relentless entity that stands in the way of finding absolution. Real quick, before we move on, Clinton McCleary wrote into us. Oh. Said, hey, CNC, back in 2013, I was listening to Beyond while playing with the Far Cry 3 map editor, and you, Colin, inspired me. Hearing your passion for the industry made me want to be a part of it. Without any gaming friends to share my passion with, I did what any sane person would do. I got off my ass and started learning game development. Seven years later, and my solo developed game should be on the drop this week. Infliction Extended Cut has been in development now for a little over four years, and it's finally arriving on PS4. Very exciting and sleepless times indeed. I have to say I was thrilled when I heard you were both entering the dev arena. To know that you'll both have that extra lens when looking at it games is refreshing, and I'm excited to hear all about your experience. An episode dedicated to it would be awesome. Game dev is easily the most challenging and rewarding thing I've done. We'll be leaving our mark on the PSN soon. And that, my friends, is an achievement worthy of a real life platinum trophy. Thank you for all that you do. And the best of luck with the Twin Breaker launch. So congratulations to you, Clinton. Your game Infliction Extended Cut coming out this week. If you guys out there are releasing games on PlayStation, you can always reach out. That's we'll be so happy cool. to, uh, to give you a shout when the game is in the drop. It is cool. Yeah, it's excellent. that's fucking awesome. All right, what do we got here? Mega Man Zero ZX Legacy Collection comes to PS4. Mega Man Zero slash ZX Legacy Collection brings together six classic titles in one game. Mega Man Zero, 1, 2, 3, and 4, as well as Mega Man ZX and ZX Advent. The collection also features Z Chaser, an exclusive new mode created just for this set of games. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of that series, but I will try to find the time at some point to play through that collection. Right. MX Nitro Ultimate Edition comes to PS4. MX Nitro Un Unleashed invites you to blaze into motocross racing Nirvana. The game expands upon the original MX Nitro with new tracks, new bosses, and new outfits. The game also includes several improvements from the original, including improved visuals. Stop using the word improved. Yeah. Use it twice in the same sentence. One Punch Man, a hero nobody knows, comes to PS4. The first One Punch Man game finally makes its debut. Dive into a dynamic fighting game experience with beloved characters from the first season of One Punch Man. Play as your favorite hero or become one. Create your own hero avatar and choose your own set of powers and abilities. I don't know if this is uh, the same game that I can remember, but One Punch Man is like an anime that's actually really awesome. Yeah, I think I think it is the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> there was one game that I saw where it's like the whole game is about you surviving or fighting in a game until One Punch Man comes and inevitably kills you in one punch. So, <laughs> so if that's the same, th if that's the same thing, that's pretty cool. But oh, okay, yeah, that's that's fun. I oh, like that. Yeah. That sounds funny as hell. It's cool. I don't know anything about One Punch Man the anime, but it's actually pretty good. It's a joke. That's what, that's what makes it good. It's like it's just making fun of anime. Ritual Crown of Horns comes to PS4. Ritual Crown of Horns is a slaughterhouse, a fast paced action game set in an alternate Wild West, a demonic version of a hellish frontier. This arcade inspired title unravels a tale about an unlikely duo, 
a bounty hunter who comes back from the grave yearning to exact revenge on his killers, and a witch who aids him with a series of powerful rituals to further his own agenda. Space Channel 5 VR, kind of funky news flash, comes to PSVR. Good lord. Dance is your power to protect the Earth against a- invading aliens. Sega's legendary Dreamcast rhythm game Space Channel 5 is coming to virtual reality as Space Channel 5 VR kind of funky news flash. Your, st- your task is to master a series of life-saving dances, dancing poses while turning into the cool beat? What is happening? Experience the return tuning of... Tuning into the cool beat. Oh, tuning into the cool beat. Experience the return <laughs> of Ulala for yourselves. Can't wait. Can't cool. wait to experience that return. I've never played Space Channel 5. I did a very long time ago. Very, very long time ago. Don't even remember it. Spartan... F- I remember the art. I mean, it, the art is very iconic, but I don't really remember playing it. Spartan Fist comes to PS4. Fight your way to fame, fortune, and glory in this first-person puncher roguelite as you work to retrieve the fabled Spartan Fist. Navigate through an arena that's different each time you play and delve into a whimsically gritty and colorfully punk pixelated world where fighting your way to the... While fighting, I'm sorry, your way to the top. Oh, good. Stab, stab, stab comes to PS4. Stab, stab, stab is a physics-based couch multiplayer arena stabbing game. (laughs) for up to four players play as explosive flesh birds with razor sharp beaks stab your friends until they pop in versus mode or team up to defend yourselves against an unending horde of cronin birds it's a great name oh i love this whatever this is (laughs) tempest comes to ps4 tempest is a pirate open world action rpg is offering an ultimate, that's what it says, is offering an ultimate ability to free roam three vast worlds filled with dozens of colonies and forts, hundreds of quests and countless ships to plunder. Trade, fight, explore on your own or call friends to do the same together. Set your foot on the land to plunder it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. Jesus Christ. Two Point Hospital comes to PS4. The hit hospital building management sim comes to console for the first time. Design stunning hospitals, decorate them as you'd like, cure very unusual illnesses, and manage troublesome staff as you spread your budding healthcare organization across Two Point County. It's a popular PC game, as I recall, I think. Maybe yeah. I'm making that up. And finally, Vasilis comes to PS4 and Vita. Vasilis is a hand-drawn adventure game. Vasilis, the main character, has lost her husband, Peter, in the rebellious city center. The city has plunged into chaos by constant riots, and almost every day something is burned or someone is killed. The game is inspired by Ukrainian political events from 2014. Interesting. Oh. Now, Chris, before we move on to the questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas, I thought I would... Should I share with... I put this on Twitter, but not, probably most people that listen to the show didn't see it. The first the first go I made of writing the the drop description for Twin Breaker. Oh, should I no. tell you what it says? All right, so here's what I wrote. You guys can let me know if you like it or not. This is what it says. While world war distracts the nations of Earth, an isolationist United States obsessively sends generation ships to nearby star systems to find new planets for America to colonize. But once in interstellar space, the ships mysteriously disappear without a trace. When clues emerge as to the whereabouts of the missing spacecraft, two talented pilots jump through a wormhole and into an un- into the unknown and a story-driven brick breaker in the spirit of Arkanoid and Breakout. Written and co-produced by longtime PlayStation media personality and podcast host, Colin Moriarty. What do you think? That's pretty good. It's a bit long, though. It yeah, might, it I got a tad long. Yeah, I got to I got to I'm going to continue to massage it. Yeah, but that's my first attempt. That's not bad. That's my first attempt. Let's move on to the questions from the audience. As you guys know, 
You submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas to us on Patreon. We go through them. We, we end our show with six of them from random members of the audience. And by the way, as our show gets more and more popular, I keep saying this, but I just feel like I need to because I feel bad. Uh, don't get discouraged if your question, comment, concern, thought, or idea isn't included. I have been saving them in a separate document that Chris and I go to once or twice a month when we do special episodes of Sacred Symbols Plus. Sometimes they're mailbag episodes, so you very may very well likely find your inquiry popping up there. But we appreciate everyone contributing, and we hope to get to everyone eventually. Nico Curtis wrote it and said, Hey, Colin and Chris, I have been struggling with if I should play games like Cyberpunk 2077 or The Last of Us Part 2 when they release. I want to play them right away, but because they release so close to the next generation, I think I would be willing to wait and play them on PlayStation 5 if that means I would be playing a better version of the game. What do you guys think? Would it be worth the months of waiting for better performance? Thanks. Chris, the reason that this question is so salient right now is because with the Xbox Series X reveal of the specs and some information, mm-hmm. I believe it was CD Projekt that said that if you buy the Xbox One version of the game, you automatically get an updated version for free on Xbox Series X. Yeah. So this question now is coming into focus in a more real way for us. We don't know if the same thing is going to happen between PS4 and PS5. I would imagine The Last of Us Part 2. These games will be playable natively on PS5, but I imagine they'll try to re-release The Last of Us Part 2 just like they did with The Last of Us Remastered. Maybe not, though. Maybe they won't be able to get away with that this time. What do you think? Should he wait and see what happens on PS5 or play them immediately? I personally won't be able to wait. Yeah. At least for The Last of Us Part 2. I just can't. I'm not going to play it immediately. But what do you think? Yeah, I don't know, man. Like for me personally, I know that I wouldn't be able to wait or be I, I wouldn't feel good about putting this arbitrary, you know, buffer between me and the game that's already out just because it could potentially have better performance. I don't think you have to worry about performance when it comes to Naughty Dog. I think that game is going to come out on PlayStation 4 and it's going to play really beautifully. And uh, I think it's probably going to play better on PlayStation 5, but I don't think it's going to play bad enough on PlayStation 4 to warrant or to justify waiting so much longer after the game comes out just to get your hands on it. I I think, especially with The Last of Us, because it's such a narrative-heavy game, I feel like you're going to want to get on that as quick as possible, man, because spoilers get around real quick. And uh, if if for any reason other than that, you know, like that's the main thing. But if if I don't know, if you don't necessarily care about that, if you don't find yourself on the Internet that much, you don't think spoilers are that much of a risk and you feel that you are willing and perfectly able to wait that long, then I I guess more power to you. Maybe you maybe they'll re-release it for cheaper or maybe you can pick it up when the price goes down and you'll be rewarded for waiting. But I don't really see the the need to do that because I I really do think that both of those games are going to run pretty well. I think so, too. We'll see how it all goes. But just to reiterate, the Cyberpunk 2077 Twitter feed said they quote tweeted the Xbox Series X announcement about compatibility. Now, Xbox Series X's tweet, one of them said Xbox Series X brings the next generation of compatibility. Play thousands of games across four generations that look and feel better than ever. Smart delivery guarantees you're playing the best version of your game for the Xbox. So Cyberpunk then quote tweeted that and said, gamers should never be forced to purchase the same game twice or pay for upgrades. Owners of Cyberpunk 2077 for Xbox One will receive the Xbox Series X upgrade for free when available. So we will see how and if Sony chooses to match that. Yeah. But I love that idea of them playing four generations of games over the same console. This is exactly what we need yeah. on PlayStation 5. But I am skeptical to say the very least. Indeed. Sean P wrote into us. Maybe it's uh, Sean Puffy Combs. Probably not. (laughs) 
says, hey, CNC, iPhones went up in price in 2016 from starting at $199 with a two-year contract to $649. Now, new iPhone Xs, is that X or 10? I think it's, is it an X I or think, 10? I think both are applicable. Okay. Start at $999. I still have an iPhone 8. People buy phones with the ex- expectation that they last two to three years. What's stopping the PS5 and Xbox Series X from launching at $800 or even $1,000 with a monthly payment plan as an option like with phones? I want to know that the tech I'm buying is good for a whole generation. Can a console that is only worth $400 or $500 carry that same promise in 2020? I got to say, I really like the conversation that's happening around game pricing right now, console pricing, and people bringing up how much we pay for phones and how we don't really blink at that anymore. Yeah. But I will say two things about that. Number one is that our phones are ubiquitous. We use them constantly every day. $1,000 for an iPhone is a fucking steal because it's awesome. I mean, I I would pay more than a thousand dollars for my iPhone, considering how much I use it and what I do with it. It's like totally, absolutely, positively worth it. Yeah. To pay that much money, I think you're going to have a harder time to justify those kinds of prices at uh, for a gaming console that has a more limited use case. And I gotta say, and I know people thought it was crazy, since they're having a hard time, PlayStation having a hard time apparently keeping costs down, and and their cost per production of a PS5 is about four hundred and fifty dollars. Once you get it shipped to market and split your cost with or like, you know, pay your fees to retailers and stuff, I think $499 is a pretty safe bet for the PS5 at this point. And I don't think you can get away with charging much more for it. And an $800 or $1,000 console is fucking suicidal. So, yeah, you got to just remember, Sean, your, your heart's in the right place. Your mind is in the right place. But we're talking about two different devices here. Yeah. With, and, yeah. Without a doubt. Like your yeah. phone is your phone is essentially your entire like it is it's akin to like your soul basically like if somebody takes your phone they have complete control over like so much of what your life is uh you know and and it's always on you it's always relevant to anything that you're doing a, a machine that's dedicated to gaming is really cool and it's it might be worth a ton of money but it's also just yeah the, the just justifying $1000 for something that sits on your desk or sits in your you know wall unit and is only really used when you're playing games or watching Netflix really isn't something that I think can be justified. And, and we tried this whole, oh, you know, consoles are kind of ubiquitous. You know, you you can go on Facebook on it and you can go on Twitter on it. I remember when they launched Facebook, the Facebook app for Xbox 360. And I, I turned it on once and I was like, OK, this is pointless. Because as much as we want our machines to do everything, some machines are just better at doing everything than others. And your phone is your device that does everything and your console is your device that plays games. And that's what they're best at. And that's how it really should stay. Indeed. I think going any higher than 500 for PS5, especially, is just getting into PS3 territory. And the optics of that is Are bad, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's not good. 599 US dollars is a meme. Yeah. So you don't want to get any higher than that. And you'll be so, some people are saying like, well, what about 549 or 449? And I'm like, you don't consoles don't sell in those integers. You don't really see that. So, yeah, I would. Bet $500 is what PS5 is going to cost. And by the way, I think that's a completely appropriate price. Inflation adjusted, that's almost what we paid for PS4 in 2013. All right. Nicholas Schaeffler wrote in and said, Hey there, C-squared. What is the appropriate price to pay for an amazing game that you know you won't enjoy? There are games like Monster Hunter or Witcher that won't tickle my fancy, but are considered some of the best games of the generation. Should I skip these games or wait until they are at a low price? Keep up the great work. Nicholas. Why would you buy a game that you know you won't enjoy? That doesn't make any sense. So yeah. the price of a game that is worth <laughs> that you know you won't enjoy is zero dollars. That's what you should pay for it. Yeah. You silly boy. Silly, silly boy. Now, hey, Chris, I, I, to be a little less flippant with Nicholas here, 
the division two is four dollars right now right on psn or three dollars or something insane and that's like nothing you that's like a cup of coffee at starbucks so even if you were like cursorily curious about the division there is no reason for you not to buy it at that price and so yeah if you think you're if you think you're not going to like witcher or monster hunter five bucks ten bucks is probably a reasonable price but you're not putting it like that nicholas you're saying amazing game that you know you won't enjoy that makes no sense why would you buy a game you know you won't enjoy if you think you won't enjoy it that's different yeah all right will han wrote in said what up crazy eyes killer colin and nutbuster chris it's a little curb your enthusiasm reference hope you two are doing very well my question is simple what are your thoughts on ninja's take with the phrase it's just a game can the competitive and time-consuming nature of a game compare to professional sports that require physical athletic ability and a lot of extensive and intensive training yeah, I might get frustrated if a save file is corrupted or a game crashes, but in the end, it's just a game. I love games and the community surrounding them, but I think they can also be taken way too seriously sometimes. Indeed, this is a subjective take, but what do you two think? Thanks for all of the great content and wonderful weekly input. It's pretty, pretty, pretty good. Thank you, Will, <laughs> for writing in. Chris, what did you make of this whole ninja fiasco of some days ago? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it it felt a little cringy, felt a little hot-headed, felt a little immature. But at the same time, the dude literally made his entire living off of being very, 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 very good at a specific video game. Actually, many video games. He was, he was a big Halo guy back in the day, also. So, I mean, to him, I, I, I don't know. I could see why him taking It's Just a Game... Like, I could see why he would take that phrase poorly, because that's literally his entire livelihood. That's literally the entire reason that he is where he is today. So to just sort of scoff at it, I I think it really is kind of shitty that we scoff at people who are like up and coming champions of that shit, like esports champions or or super, super good on at a specific game. Because I know that I can't be that good. Like, I know there's definitely like a skill set there that I do not have and i don't know if any amount of training would ever really get me to that point so it is athleticism in some ways and i i do think that you know maybe we, we don't respect it as much as maybe we should or maybe we or maybe we respect athleticism a little too much but overall i think it was a bit it was a bit cringy i, th- I think he just kind of lost his cool and it just seemed a little over the top the way he was ranting. Yeah. So the particular tweet, I don't know how many of them there are in this thread, but it's from February 18th. And it says the phrase, it's just a game is such a weak mindset. You are okay with what happened, losing and perfection of a craft. When you stop getting angry after losing, you've lost twice. There's always something to learn and always room for improvement. Never settle. People are just looking to hate on this guy a little bit, I think. And this isn't really that controversial of a thing. Now, yeah, it's it's a little weird to get upset about a video game. But like Chris is saying, this guy plays it at such a high competitive level where his whole livelihood is dependent on it in his business that this makes sense to me. I mean, yeah, people get angry. I'm a huge hockey fan, a huge football fan. The Islanders get pretty upset when they lose. And the Jets, you go into the locker room or talk to them after the game and they're upset. And they're some of them won't even talk to the press because they're so mad and stuff like that. Doesn't yeah. seem that different in premise. So. I think competitive gaming, I'm still wrapping my head around it. I still think it's a little strange, but it's it's really I love chess, right? And it's not really any different than that. Now, I'm not going to like flip the fucking board over and punch someone in the face when I lose in chess, but it's not a physical activity. It's not athletic. And I think that's like where people's hold up is. But 
hey, if you're really good at something, you want to be and stay really good at something you should be angry about losing, I think, as well. But I don't know. Maybe angry is the wrong word. I don't know. I don't really have a problem with this statement. I'm just reading it over and over again. I don't know that I really take issue with this. I think a lot of guy people just like to hate on this guy. Yeah, I, I think so, too. Because like, I know that like whenever like me and my roommates play Destiny 2, whenever we jump into like competitive, that's pretty much where our anger goes. <laughs> like, like if we lose, we're, all, we're like screaming constantly like, fuck, what the fuck are you doing? Get over here. Help me, idiot. And it's just kind of like uh, that's the perfect. That, I feel like that's why I just don't get angry whenever I walk outside or whenever I'm just like out in the world. Cause I just get all of it out when I'm playing competitively. So I, I don't know, man. It just it makes sense that people would get mad if they're fucking losing. <laughs> at a game that they're supposedly good at, or maybe if they lost a game that they're like, I mean, Ninja's like the top player in the world, I think for that game. So if he loses, I can understand why that would be frustrating. Yeah. And it's like, if I, you know, if you're a fan of an NFL team and then they go, the press goes into the locker room after a loss, a bad loss. I'm like, Oh, there's always next week. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Where's your like competitive fire and your flair? Yeah. It's a little, so yeah, I totally get it. Now the biggest problem I have with Ninja is that his business email is business at team ninja.com. He got the URL team ninja. That's pretty surprising. Yeah. I can't believe that that wasn't already taken. That's very surprising. I don't like his hair. Nah, I can do without it as well, but I'm not God's gift to women by any chance, any stretch of the imagination. So I'm not going to sit here and judge people's uh, <laughs> looks. Yeah. Jacob Shaquai wrote in and said, hey, guys, why do many people compare the price of the PS5 to the PS4 based on inflation? Inflation doesn't necessarily matter because of the many new parts that go into a new machine. And the similar parts, if there are any, would have gone down in price since then. A fair price should be based on what it costs for them to make the machine and not comparing it to previous machines. Thanks for all you do. All right. Well, Jacob, you're kind of making an argument against yourself here because inflation is probably the most relevant indicator of value over time. The consumer doesn't care. Let's just use food for an example. I'll make like nuts have gotten really expensive. But you're getting the same amount or fewer nuts in like a package of almonds than you were 10 years ago, but you're eating the same almond. The end result is the same almond to the consumer, even if it's grown the same and even if there are different challenges in getting it to market and water is expensive or whatever. So the point I'm trying to make is that like the only thing the end the end user cares about is what the machine is and what it can do. They don't care about anything else. So the inflationary cost of a product is incredibly relevant. I just totally disagree with your assumption here that it's about all these other things. I mean, you can make the... I was surprised he didn't make the argument, Chris, that a lot of people do that. Purchasing power is down. That's different. And that's true, by the way. You know, you people make more money now in real money, but they, they have less purchasing power. But inflation still is a relevant indicator of value. And I don't know. I just wanted to bring this up because this conversation is going to come up a lot in the next few months when we finally wrap our minds around what PS5 costs and what's in it. Yeah. We're going to be talking a lot about inflation and it's incredibly relevant to the value of your dollar. Jacob, don't be silly. Please don't be silly. Do you have anything to say about that, Chris? No, I think you're right. All right. Bang on. And finally, David Fahey wrote in. Why did I say it so slowly? Hey, copulating Colin and cock blocked Chris. First time, long time. A while ago, you mentioned that you found it weird that Spec Ops The Line had American enemies in it. And it got me thinking, would either of you play a game that portrayed the U.S. military as antagonists, e.g. as an invading force? Would a game like this ever get made? I'd love to hear your thoughts. As always, keep fucking those chickens and killing those babies. But for the love of God, don't get them mixed up. <laughs> you don't want that. <laughs> now, uh, I would love to play a game like this. That would be fucking awesome. Yeah, no, and without a doubt. 
uh, I would absolutely love to play as the, Amer- the Americans as bad guys. That, that, no problem with that whatsoever. And actually, this kind of connects to what we were talking about about Persona in a weird way, Chris, because we were talking about things that might be uh, offensive to your sensitivities. I'm an American. I don't think we're the bad guys, but that's still something I'd want to see. I would love to see that. I would love to make that game. I would totally make that game if I had the ability to do that. Would you like to play as the U.S. military as the antagonists in a game? Yeah, I would like to play. Uh, Yeah, that'd be awesome. I I don't see any problem with that. I I mean, we've played Call of Duty games where we've gunned down civilians in airports. Like, I I don't see a reason why we couldn't play as a evil U.S. military or against a U.S. military from the perspective of maybe like a smaller country or or whatever. That'd be that'd be cool. Yeah, it'd be awesome. I mean, we've killed East Asians in games, Arabs in games, Russians why can't we kill Americans? I mean, Spec Ops, that was what, one of the notable things about Spec Ops was it's really one of the only games I can think of where that where we actually are straight up killing Americans. The, one of the only other games I can think of is Homefront. Yeah. So uh, the original Homefront, not the second one, because the second one's about the Koreans, I think, invading the United States. But in the, actually, the first one's about that, too. But I think that, that you... So maybe it's not in the original Homefront either. Yeah, I don't think so, actually. So maybe Spec Ops is really the only one. I was thinking that they had proxies, but I'm now getting confused with like Red Dawn. <laughs> And the Nicaraguans. I'm sure someone will write in and be like, oh, this game has it. But like, I can't think of any high profile releases that ever have done that. I can't think of a single one that's ever done it aside from Spec Ops. Uh, and I even forgot about Spec Ops. I would love to see that. It would be very controversial. But I, I think that if people can just get past that, it would be really, really fun to play that as well. And I wouldn't mind playing a game from the perspective of like the Wehrmacht and the Nazi military in World War II or the Imperial Japanese just to get that perspective, you don't necessarily have to get the political perspective. You don't necessarily have to support what they're doing, obviously. But what it would be interesting to play like the Battle of the Bulge from the Nazi perspective, right? Or, the, you know, Midway from the Japanese perspective or whatever the case might be. I think that there's a lot of interesting stories and experiences that can be told there. It doesn't mean that you endorse it. Yeah. And so just like you when you if you read Mein Kampf or something, many many of us have read that book over the last what, 70, 80 years doesn't mean you endorse Nazism. It means that you're curious about the perspective that's in the book. And so and you want to have that knowledge or whatever in games. It's all about perspective and point of view. And so it would be fun to to do that. You know, in Vanquish, you're fighting the Russians in Vanquish, too. And it's like, yeah. And and in the beginning of Vanquish, they destroy San Francisco with like a mega laser weapon or whatever. Yeah. And uh it's like it's it's cool, but it's like, wouldn't it be cool if the shoe was on the other foot? I would love that. It would be awesome if Vanquish was about the Americans invading and fucking up Russia. But it, it, we just never get those perspectives. So as, as uncomfortable as some of those things would be, I think all of it is open for games. And I would certainly be interested in playing those kinds of things. Definitely. Yeah. All right, Chris, that's all we have for this. Let me see here. Yeah. Extensive episode of Sacred Symbols. We hope uh, everyone enjoyed it out there. Thank you so much for your love, your kindness, and your support of our show. And remember to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand for early ad-free access and for access to our mega popular supplemental podcast that goes up every week only for patrons called Sacred Symbols Plus. Thank you again. We love you. Be good. Remember what I said at the beginning too. vote. Go out there and vote for God's sakes. Yeah. For whoever your candidate might be. Yeah, you idiots. Go out there. You dumb fucks. All right. Chris, thank you for your time. Of course. Appreciate all you guys out there. Be good. Bye. Take care, guys. Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast, is a product of and a registered trademark of Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Richmond, Virginia and Burbank, California, USA. This show is conceived by, is written by, and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Chris Raygun.
You can find me on Twitter at NoTaxation and on Instagram at CLS Moriarty. Chris is on Twitter at Chris R. Gunn and on Instagram at Chris underscore Ray underscore Gunn. Sacred Symbols is edited by Dustin Furman. To message the show online, please use Patreon's DM service. As you know, all of Colin's Last Stand shows, including Sacred Symbols, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and we are eternally grateful for your kindness, generosity, and fandom. Chris Adams, Carlos Algaret, Morgan Ashley, Saul Balcazar, Taylor Barkley, Martin Beck, Tyler Bello, Mark Boggio, Barrett Boswell, Spencer Brand, Lennon Brixey, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Dylan Burns, Chris Buston, Alex Cabrera, Patrick Harper, William O'Carroll, Brian Chan, Sean Chandler, David Chestnut, Rodney Coleman, Simon Conception, Brad Cooley, John Cordero, Gio Corsi, Philip Crone, Daniel D'Amore, Colin Davenport, Knight Draft, David Ellis, Jerome Ferreira, Joe Finelli, Eric Finkenbeiner, Chris Galvin, Darren Gardner, Connor Gashian, Alex Gates, Michael Gates, Salem Gotham Algonham, Tyler Goodwin, Josh Gravelick, Miranda Grubba, Jonathan H., Eric Harden, Tyler Harris, Richard Hebert III, Kyle Hagel, Wyatt Henry, Robbie Hensley, Scott Hernandez, Blake Israel, Azan Isa Al Ricey, Josh Yeager, Joshua Jonathan, Paul Joyce, Greg Juliffs, Anton Kay, Patrick Kelly, Jeremy Key, Anti Kinnanen, James Kinslow III, Ryan R. Kittredge, Bo Clan, Mike Naffo, Mason Cadillac, Jackson Lastiqua, Don Q. Lee, Patrick Leslie, Keith A. Lewis, Chad Lewis, Lou and Ray Loper, Colin Love, Scott Lovelace, Josh M., Kiet Mai, Ryan T. Mandel, Ross Maranka, Matt Martin, Sean Mason, John McCarthy, Josh McKinney, Joe McPartland, Raul Melendez, Chris Moore, Betty Ann Moriarty, Ryan Murdoch, Stephen Nieder, Adam Nick, Donnie Nolan, Dan Nolan, George A. Nunez, Jesse Owen, Jorge Palomino, Andrew Parker, Zach Parsley, Daniel Parsons, Todd Paxton, Marius S. Peterson, Gerald Pennington, Matthew Perdue, Enrique Perez, Jason Pettit, Travis Plymel, Jeff Pollard, Lawrence F. Prokop, Nathan R., Ryan Reeves, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Daniel Rivas, Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, Jose Salinas, John Schultz, Michael Shanholtz, Toby Schutman, Gregory Slavinsky, Joshua Small, Smallwood, Ahmad Tamar, Ben Thompson, Carl Tolman, Alan Tremblay, Michael Vecchio, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Isaac Wastman, Damon Weathers, Mike Wayne, David Wright, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zaniga, Bloody Fang, Galja, Casual Misfits Gaming, Homeworld Hub, Throw7, McDog18, Infinite, Boots, Organic Produce, Mad Mock Media, Lockmort, Not Your Real Dad, Mubarak, Richter86, Hugo's Desk, Of Fortuna, Andrew, Ian, Dav9834, Gamer Filmaholic, Megadet, and Rainick. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. 
Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.